Yeah, it's, it's not going to be intimidating at all to have a camera pointed at my crotch the entire yeah. time. <laughs> no, that's fine. Hi there, I'm Brian Colon, and I'm the creator of Rampage, the arcade game, among others. And you're listening to the Pie Factory podcast with Sean and Jim. Unless I'm not supposed to say their names because the kind of stuff they put out there probably makes me think they want some anonymity. However, the fact that I misplaced, misplaced, mispronounced anonymity means that this whole thing is for shit, and I, that's why I probably shouldn't do intros. Record or discord? So I, so I guess this is the time when we should start talking. Let us talk. Okay, uh, let, um, how about some romaine or iceberg? or? Uh, ah, uh, let us entertain you. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to start out with an apology. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, this epi- what, what did you do now? You know, this episode would have been out a lot sooner, except uh, instead of hitting the export button, I hit the cancel button. And so we're recording this episode oh. a week late. <laughs> Be easy on yourself. You actually hit cancel instead of export selected audio. All right. So, yeah, so that's kind of what happened. We would have had this out sooner, except I hit cancel. Yeah. So. And then I hit you in the face for hitting cancel. Which is odd because we haven't actually been in the same room in uh, months now. Acting. Acting. So, yeah, there you go. But It's so much for our plans to not record during December. Well, you know. Stuff happens, so. Yeah. I was actually toying with the idea of not recording at all tonight and putting this episode off until the new year and just, you know, we promised an episode and we're going to deliver. That's the one of the first yeah. things they tell you in radio. If you tease something, yep. you deliver on it. That's right. Yeah, and we're delivering on it. Lucky and you. And we're a couple of teases. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, by the way, this is episode 87. Is it 87? Uh, I think it's 87. Uh, well, there's a way to find out. Oh, it's in my episode notes. Yeah, it's episode number 87. So yeah, it's episode 87 of the Pie Factory podcast. And, the uh, Pie Factory podcast, not Pie Factory, Pie Factory. And I'm... Emphasizing um, the second word. As a third grade substitute teacher once called me, I am Sion. Sion. Yes. And I am... Ja- uh, j- Ah, just Jim. Just call me oh. Jim. Just Jim. Oh, sure. Jim's just a right. good guy. Yeah. So what have you been doing since episode 86? Uh, other than screwing up recordings? Um, actually, uh, I was playing some of the games that we're going to be talking about tonight. Duh, well, that's duh. redundant. Yeah. I'm in the process of getting a new 7800 because my the one I have, I think, is uh, destroyed because of the... Uh, my surge protector that I had on it, uh, but uh, I replaced that. Might have to get a new power supply for my Atari 8-bit, so there's that going on. And mm. I uh, purchased the uh, Duke Nukem 3D 20th Anniversary World Tour Pack. Come get some. And uh, there's a whole new set of levels on there based on locations around the world, and uh, I solved that, and yeah, there's a reason why I don't play too many, th- why I, I play more retro uh, type games rather than modern day first person shooters. That yep. modern day first person shooters make me nauseous. Same here. They didn't at first. I could, I maybe it's because I'm getting older, but when, uh, du- not Duke Nukem, but when um, Wolfenstein 3D first came out, I hadn't, I didn't really have much of a problem with it. But as time yeah. goes on and the technology got better and things went smoother and faster, 
I started having problems with it. And so, yeah, I mean, I played through the, all the new levels, and then I'm like, I can't play this anymore. And it's a shame, because I really like Duke Nukem 3D, but, you know, I prefer not feeling like I'm going to throw up with a headache, too. So there you go. Yeah. So that's it with me. How about with you? Oh. Wow. I've had a very bizarre last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Really bizarre. I'm just going to have to get this out, so just bear with me, everybody. Uh, I'm going to start with by far the worst thing, and uh, um, when was it? It was uh, Thursday night, November 29th, um, the night after we tried to record the first one. Um, sadly, um, my precious little beagle um, uh, had a fatal heart attack after I brought her in for a nighttime walk. So also, that's what that, it was. Yeah. You hadn't yeah. known at the time uh, that had happened. Well, yeah, yeah, it was kind of weird because I mean, she was, the, well, the thing is, I mean, it was, you know, it, it, it was, it's been really, it's seriously been really rough for my wife and me. And, uh, today we're both doing a hell of a lot better though, thankfully, but still, I mean, there are some positives we took away from it. Like for example, all three of us were together the second that it happened. Mm -hmm. So it's not like one of us was gone or we both were gone or whatever, when I was uh, growing up, one of our dogs died while we were on vacation. That's got to suck. Oh, man. That was one of the few times I ever saw my dad cry. Yeah. yeah. And the other, like, the other really big positive that we took away from this was that she was a happy little dog when she went. And we had just gotten home. Mm -hmm. And she, one of two things usually happened when we got home. Either she'd be asleep in bed in our bed that is snoring mm -hmm. away. Well, you mean you were sleeping, you were going to sleep in her bed. Well, let's, let's face it. When you have a beagle, that's pretty, you're basically the beagles being nice enough to let you live with yeah. him or her in our case. It's like her. a canine version of a cat. So yeah, usually what would either happen is Ruthie would either be asleep in bed or she would greet us at the door. And that night she greeted us at the door. She was like, Oh my God, you're home. You're home. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And she was running back and forth between my <laughs> wife and me, not knowing whom she wanted to get some attention from first. And, uh, so I said, okay, Ruthie, settle down. Let's go outside for your, for, for your nighttime poop. And she's like, yeah, let's go. So we, I take her outside. We go downstairs. She pees in the snow. She's like, I'm going to go back upstairs. And, uh, mind you, she was about 13, 14 years old and arthritic the entire 10 years we had her. So she doesn't, mm -hmm. she didn't really it didn't really bother her that much, but as she got older, she was a little bit slower going up and down the stairs, but mm. uh, sometimes she'd need a little bit of encouragement, like a little nudge in the butt or something. Right. That night she didn't, she just ran straight up. And then just as she was crossing in, she yelped and then just collapsed. And, uh, mm. so we, we, and we were just both kind of shocked at the time. So, uh, and my wife said, is she gone? I said, I, I don't know. I, I'm, and she called the emergency vet and they, they said, well, I'll bring her in, you know, we'll see what we can do if anything. And, and of course they pretty much confirmed what we thought, but, mm -hmm. uh, so that was the worst thing that happened. Um, I was hoping that the worst thing that happened would have been this part of the last few weeks I'm going <laughs> to talk about, and that's my Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> Uh, which we spent some quality time in New Jersey with my mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just going to say this much. First of all, I need to share pictures that I took at Newark International Airport, Terminal A, with our friends, our Pie Factory podcast listeners. <laughs> I'll put them on Facebook and I'll see if I can uh, link them somehow through the show notes. 
let's just say that uh, a friend of my wife's put it best and said, Newark is the Newark of airports. So, yeah. And uh, on top of all that, Thanksgiving morning, my mother-in-law discovered a flood in her basement. Oh, boy. And uh, we figured out that it was coming from the toilet that's downstairs in her house. And anytime water was being used, the toilet was overflowing, which meant that on Thanksgiving, well, th- this was after I had already taken a shower, thankfully, we couldn't run any water, we couldn't do any laundry, we couldn't flush, we couldn't uh, take a shower, and of course, try calling a plumber on Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's a yeah. lot. We actually did get someone to come out, and um, uh, I think I think it helped that I name dropped somebody whose review I saw on Yelp or something. <laughs> And, you know, everybody I was calling was like, hey, it's Thanksgiving. I said, yeah, it's Thanksgiving for us, too, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah, and then, so he came over Thanksgiving. We thought it was fixed. And um, I th- either my wife or my mother-in-law tried to do a load of laundry, and then suddenly the basement was flooded again. So the guy had to come back out and dig a tree root out of the sewer pipe that was causing the problem. And, yeah. But here's where things are getting interesting because during that day, that was Black Friday, uh, before the plumber was able to finish the job, we went over to Asbury Park. And while my wife and my mother-in-law were shopping around, I stopped in at Silver Ball, which is a pinball museum. And I I actually didn't play any pinball. I played some video games, actually, because they have... Um, a pretty decent selection of core classics. Like they have crystal castles, they have millipede centipede. Their millipede is actually configured in such a way. That's basically just a slightly glorified centipede. And it's, I don't know what the hell they did with it. Like once you destroy your DDT, they never come back for one thing. Uh huh. And there are hardly any enemies. It's basically just the spiders, the, the uh, earwig, And that's pretty much it really. And let's see, they have a Turbo Pac-Man, which I didn't get. In fact, there's hardly anything I really got to play because that joint was so freaking crowded. I mean, I had been to Silver Ball on a Black Friday before, and it was not that crowded. But every screaming child on the Jersey Shore was having a party that day at Silver Ball. And their clueless young moms and like much older sisters and cousins were basically parking themselves at video games and never, ever, ever leaving. And it's like, come on, man. It's like, look, you're not even breaking 10,000 on centipede. Move your ass. <laughs> and it's like, and, and man, I've complained about Saturdays at galloping ghost because mm-hmm. you can't freaking move around and there's no elbow room. Oh my God. Saturdays at galloping ghost are practically deserted compared to how silver ball was. But man, and something weird, something weird <laughs> at Silverball, kind of like how they do it in Underground Retrocade and um, Galloping Ghost. And I think Pixel Blast does this too. On top of each of the machines, they put the local high score and who scored it. They're on little tiny whiteboards, actually. And a few years ago, I had gotten the house high on their Turbo Ms. Pac-Man machine, 373,000, by far not my best game, mm-hmm. but it was by far the best game they had there. <laughs> <laughs> so the next couple of times I went back, like one or two times over the next couple of years, my name was still up there. This time, however, on Black Friday, I went there, my name was no longer up there, and it was some other schmo, 
and his score was like 275,000. I was like, wait a minute, is this new math or something? It's like 275,000 better than 373. I didn't want to raise a stink. So especially because of how busy they were. So instead I just played a game of Ms. Pac-Man Turbo. Uh, I think I got slightly more, but it's like, you know what? Fine. As long as my name's back up there where it belongs. So yeah, you'll see my name. Uh, it is if the guy ever actually got around to putting it up there, but you'll see my name at silver ball on their turbo Ms. Pac-Man machine. And you'll also see things like antique pinball machines with uh, cup holders attached to them. Oh man, hmm. that's just asking for trouble. Oh yeah. And, uh, and that's another thing. something with these little kids running around. It's obvious that there's not really a lot of care that goes into uh, making sure that these machines are well cared for. Unlike, say, at uh, Galloping Ghost, uh, Galloping Ghost with their no gum signs all over the place. No gum allowed. And I know that uh, Scott at Underground Retrocade is very vigilant about making sure that his machines are kept in good shape and you know, oh, people right. aren't abusing I mean, them. We've uh, we've talked about the uh, incident with, uh, what machine was that? Um, that was... Um, was that Primal Rage 2? Primal Rage 2 at, at uh, Midwest at, Gaming Classic. At Midwest yeah. Gaming Classic, right. Yeah, when someone yeah. spilled beer on it, yeah. Doc was able to save it. Thankfully, but yeah, and uh, I don't, I don't mean to bash Silverball. I mean it's it's a fun place, and I will be going back next time I'm in, I'm in that area, of course. But they just don't really seem to have the care. For one thing, they have blurbs on top of all the games explaining the, uh, a little bit of the backstory and all that. And the way they explain the Ms. Pac-Man story is that it was all Namco's idea. And it was mm-hmm. their sequel and all. It's like, eh, you guys don't know the story. <laughs> and they have a Pong cabinet. And this is actually something that Jeff Prescott from uh, No Quarter pointed out to me when he, sh- when he saw the picture that I took there a few years ago. The Pong cabinet does not actually have a real Pong game in it. It's apparently Atari's home Pong console. He said you can tell by the pattern of the screensaver. He says the arcade Pong doesn't have that screensaver. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye when I was there on Black Friday that not only did it have that screensaver, but it was also in color. Hmm. 1972 Pong cabinets were not color. Uh, no. No, they 1972 weren't. anything wasn't color, I don't think. Might be wrong, but I don't think anything was in color until, like, probably closer to 1977. But, yeah, so that was that. And, uh, oh, dude. While I was at Silverball, I heard somebody say the name of the first Galaxian sequel, except he pronounced it Galaga. Huh. So that was freaky. That was freaky. That was freaky. Because when we did our montage of pronunciation, where we just held a sign up to people and asked them to read it, that was never one of the pronunciations. No, it was not. I actually heard someone say Galaga, but that was it but not Galaga, which of course is what that one blog entry that I found said that somebody from Midway told him is the proper pronunciation. And then Brian Colon and his buttload of plugs. I've got a buttload of plugs. I, wait a minute, there's got to be a better way to say that. Told us that, <laughs> <laughs> told us that they never pronounced it like that when he was. We always said Galaga. Yeah. Now, I can't say what the marketing people upstairs said, but we said Galaga. That's such a great impersonation. <laughs> I love it. Uh, good guy, good huh. guy. So, yep. awesome. Other positive thing, though, about that trip, though, and I, I, I kind of want to mention this because this is uh, very fascinating. This is not really gaming-related, but 
My mother-in-law picked us up at the airport after we landed. Mm -hmm. And my wife suggested that we, on the way back to her house, that we make a little side trip over to the former Bell Labs building in Homedale, New Jersey. Because that, that's where my mother-in-law had her first full-time job. That's where she met her husband, her ex-husband, actually, my late father-in-law. Uh, he was an engineer at Bell Labs there. Uh -huh. And my wife actually worked there for her first full-time job before they moved to uh, Middletown across just a few miles away shortly after I moved to New Jersey. So there's a, basically a lot of, a lot of my family history there. And, uh, during that whole disaster that was Lucent and, uh, AT&T basically going all the hell, the AT&T that we have now is not the AT&T from say 20 years ago. It's a completely different company. It's basically Don't even get me started. It's yeah. uh, it's uh, actually SBC. And they just, uh, they bought out a lot of the old baby bells, like Ameritech and yeah. all that. And then they changed the name to SBC and they are the worst company on the face of the planet. Uh, I'm sorry. Got a lot. <laughs> I got a lot of, other, a lot of competing companies for that, by the way. Now, I know people complain <laughs> about Comcast, but compared to uh, how AT&T has screwed my family over several times, Comcast are yeah. like the mother, well, no, it's not a good comparison. Um, no, mother, mother is definitely a good first word there. <laughs> Yeah, Comcast is mother. AT&T is a mother something. By the way, um, if AT&T and Comcast, if you're listening, we're still open to having you as sponsors. Don't get me wrong. Oh, we're nothing if not whores. Exactly, yeah. But what was I about to say? Oh, yeah, when, but anyway, they Bell Labs vacated that building long ago, and it's the last building that was designed by Euro... That, that, I, can't t I can't say his name because I'm too tired. That's the guy. It was the last building that he ever built, and... Uh, I think there were actually thoughts of just demolishing the whole building. It's a huge complex, but some people got together and fought for it and they got historic landmark status on that building. So it saved the building from demolition. And where might people know Aeroseranen from? I don't know where else. He's a famous architect, but he's dead, of course. Gateway Arch, St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I knew his name. Uh -huh. Well, that we talked about this before. We talked about this before, of course, but our friends haven't heard it yet and they never will. <laughs> so, um, in the meantime, uh, what is there now? If you, you can actually go into the building and they're kind of turning into a big, huge honking multi-purpose facility and the original benches and chairs and railings and things from when it was bell labs are still there because they couldn't take them out because it's historic status. And uh, what's fascinating is that apparently like on the upper floors, which I don't think you can access unless you actually work there, but in the upper floors, you can actually see where there are ashtrays built into the rails because that's when uh, people were still allowed to smoke indoors. So it's really fascinating. And you walk in, there's a big grand piano there that I think anybody can play if you feel like playing it. And uh, there's a, there's a really nice food court with local, uh, food people like you can get some really good pizza there and some uh, greek food i think and uh, some taco stuff and sandwich stuff and uh there are just all kinds of different boutiques and stores and stuff and there's uh actually actually either a branch or the home dell public library is there too i don't know if it's just a branch or the main library and there are a whole bunch of uh, different tenants on the second floor basically offices and stuff like there's a comcrap office up there and so basically it's really cool seeing that place being used and they have done absolutely nothing in terms of changing 
its appearance. You can, it's, it, and uh, there's, they're like museum oh. exhibits of old phone things. Oh, oh, dude, I, this is something you haven't heard, but my wife loves to tell this about how years ago when she was at, uh, when she was still working at AT&T, uh, which is what it was when she was there and when her father worked there actually by before he died, shortly before he died, it was AT&T. But at one of the pay phones, there was a phone book that they never, ever, ever updated. It was from 1981. And just for S's and G's, she looked up Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, no. It was a New York phone book. She looked up Jerry Seinfeld and found his phone number. Really? <laughs> and she said it was the exact same address that he used on the show. Like years later. Yeah. The exact same. Dig this though. When we went to the Bell Labs building after my mother-in-law picked us, when we blah, 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 blah. With the reason I'm, I'm telling this story, there was a bank of phone books and oh, sure neat. as hell, there was an old phone book with Jerry Seinfeld's phone number in there. Unlike with the other phone book my wife found many years ago, she did not tear the page out and keep it. She left it in. <laughs> But yeah, that was, that was actually really, really cool. And, oh, and this is, this is another reason I, I, uh, I'm bringing this up because I know Ferg listens to us from time to time, if not all the time, something that Ferg does occasionally with the Atari 2600 game by game podcast is he will put out a off topic episode and he'll call it bonus tracks. And one of the bonus tracks episode he did was about the uh-huh. so-called quiet room at the Bell Labs facility in Murray Hill, New Jersey which was named the quietest place in the face of the earth. And he told all about it, how he got to go in there once somebody showed it to him once. And, uh, the building in Holmdel also has a quiet room. And I really wanted to see if I could go there, but I don't think, I think it's off limits. And even then it was, it was like a ways away from where we were and it would have probably wouldn't have been worth the walk to go there. But I, I would love to check that out if I ever get the opportunity. But if you're a phone nerd and you happen to be at the Jersey Shore at any time, go to the Bell Labs facility in Holmdale. It is such a cool place to check out. Cool. So, yeah. So that's uh, that was my Thanksgiving. And, of course, the week after. And Oh, and not only was my mother-in-law's plumbing a problem, but the Monday we got back, there was a pretty significant snowfall. It was a big snowstorm, actually. My wife is a teacher for Chicago public schools. They didn't close Chicago public schools rarely ever closes for anything, um, which I can almost understand because it would be a logistical nightmare for several hundred schools to have to be rescheduled. But the thing is there was a power outage at my wife's school and her school is a very modern building. It's only about 13, 15 years old and their plumbing is powered by an electrical system and there's no backup which meant that they couldn't flush toilets or run a hot water or, any, or run any water really at all. And on top of all that, there wasn't any heat in the building. So you can imagine what a wonderful day of school that was. <laughs> and then later on that week, I'm taking my shower at home and I'm realizing this water is not very hot. It's just mildly lukewarm. And um, we called our 24-hour guy, and he looked into it, and it turns out that uh, the thermostat in our water heater was shot. So he said, well, the basement apartment's vacant. You could just use that shower until we get this fixed. And it was fixed a couple of days later. So there was something about that week where we had bad water karma. Oh, there's a man named Water Karma. Probably the last weird thing that happened to me is uh, today at work, I found out that my company 
was bought out by one of the largest restaurant corporations on the face of the earth. So the owner of our company said, oh, by the way, we have champagne in the kitchen uh, and and t-shirts for everybody. And so the (laughs) t-shirts that were available were medium, large, and 5X. So yeah, it's it's just been a weird time. Yeah, that's kind of our time, motto. But, uh, a weird time. Then again, that's Pie Factory podcast for well, you. one of our mottos. So, uh, what have you been? I already told you. Oh, that's yeah. right. You already told me what you've been up to. So, god damn it. Uh, well, we have some emails to read, and we have some news, and a bit of a addenda or errata, perhaps yes, maybe both. Well, you know, let's go into that right now. Okay. Because I. Made an erratum, and I, excuse me. And there it is. And there it is. And I feel really stupid about making that erratum. The erratum that I said was that I was pretty sure that no home version of Frogger has the otter in it. Imagine my surprise when I was playing the official Frogger on the Atari 2600, the version made by Arcadia for the Arcadia Supercharger. Starpath. It's both. They either changed their name or got bought out at one point. They changed their name because of lawyers. Gee, there's a shock. Yep. Yeah, they. I think they got a threatening letter from uh, another company that shared their name. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, what, oh God, and the reason I know that is because on any um, Starpath Arcadia box that has a label on it explaining the name change, they spell it's I-T-S apostrophe. oh my god i get a headache just thinking about that good grief but anyway the supercharger version of frogger on the atari 2600 does indeed have the otter the money otter yeah so here we go i'm gonna have to give you a link to that so you can use the put the word otter in oh dude you know um that was another thing on my thanksgiving tradition is to watch Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas mm-hmm. during the flight to New Jersey. And I have a pirated version that incorporates <gasps> all different versions into one full length version that doesn't have any missing scenes or anything. Mm-hmm. There was a new DVD put out last year, and I think there's a Blu-ray coming out soon that has the stuff in there. But number one, the aspect ratio was futzed with to fit HDTVs without any black bars, which I don't really like. And number two, they have everything that was ever in a version of Emmett Otter, but they're not necessarily sequenced. It's like there's one main Emmett Otter feature, but then the extra things are separate tracks. And I don't really like that, but there are some awesome bonus materials on that. And there's a soundtrack album out now. And originally I wasn't going to get the soundtrack album, but then while I'm watching Emmett Otter, I'm like, damn, these are all really good songs. So I said to my wife, I said, I think I'm going to get the soundtrack album. She said, why don't you maybe wait and see? Uh, you never know if uh, Santa might drop something off for you. <laughs> so I'm excited. Oh, about there that. we go. It, it, if I, and if it doesn't happen, then I'm going to just get it my own damn self. Well, I anyway. have an, aden- or an errata going all the way back to episode nine. Yeah. Where we talked about Xevious and Lost Tomb. Good Lord. Well, I was playing through some games in MAME the other day, and I happened to play uh, one of the games I played was uh, one of the was the 3D um, first person uh, sequel to Xevious. And uh, all this time, I've been mispronouncing the name of your spaceship in Xevious. I keep saying Sovalu. Oh, I thought now, the name was Fred. Uh, actually, it's Frank. Oh. You know, turn your crank to Frank. Ooh. Okay. Brooks and Dunn. But um, 
what happened is that the name, when you start the game up, you can barely make it out, but it does pronounce the name of the ship. The name of your ship in Xevious, which is also the name of the Xevious sequel, is Sovalau. Oh, so the so OU is, is pronounced like an English OU? I guess, Sovalau. So, weird. there you go. Does that mean that, that our friend Greg is actually Sowl Blazer? Ooh, good point. Sowl Blazer. Ooh. But, um, so, yeah, I thought that, uh, interesting. And, um, for some reason, this game, it's, uh, for those who are familiar with a game like, uh, another Namco similar game called Starblade, it's a 3D on-rails shooter. You're, like, in, you know, inside the, inside the ship. For some reason, it, like, crashes after, like, about a minute, and I cannot figure out hmm. why. It's every version of MAME I've tried, and, um... Supposedly, this game was only released in Japan, but uh, I did play it in Joliet at Aladdin's Castle at one point, so I don't know if it was just a limited release here or whatever, but I did play it in Joliet, and I rather liked the game. I just wish somebody would get a cabinet for it, so. Actually, you said another thing that reminded me of something. First of all, I am nothing if not a whore, and uh, so I will be whoring myself right now. Autobiography of a Schnook uh, Chapter 2 will be coming out soon at Eh. schnookpodcast.com and your favorite podcast supplier. And that chapter will actually involve a lot of mall talk. So, uh, yeah. Mall talk with uh, Sean. Mall talk with Sean. And the other thing that you said, familiar, that made me think, I had something that I have to say. Did I say familiar? You said familiar, which reminded me, there is a new Super Podcast Brothers episode out. Woohoo. And it's almost five and a half hours long. I have a major, major issue with that episode. Oh, the episode topic was there's the 70 best video game box arts or cover arts or something like well, that. Well, well, retro games in general, because they do computers and yeah. stuff too. Well, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Cause I think there were a couple of Amiga things and, and uh, maybe I think an Atari ST thing here and there, yeah. but this, this is a spoiler alert because it's going to talk about something that didn't make their list. And I'm really pissed about it. I was so mad that they didn't even consider the cover art for the Atari 2600 Popeye, and I'm specifically talking about the Taiwan Cooper version. <laughs> that is the most amazing cover art ever, ever. Well, I don't know. Uh, E.T. Go Come is, uh, is, is another uh, 2600 uh, classic. I don't know. Might be close. I don't know. Might be close. I, I was kind I of upset know. that they're only active, that they didn't choose, uh, choose Pitfall 2 for the 2600 on their list. But I'm not going to say anymore. It's a it's a five plus hour episode, so make some time for it. Get the fire going and grab a cup of hot chocolate. Bring the pot with you, and well, the pot of hot chocolate. Well, since this is Tim and Andy, you might want to bring the pot too. But um, and enjoy the episode. So yeah, new new super podcast brothers out. We should probably link it in the show notes. So with that, I think we should probably re- we got a couple of emails from Trek MD. Oh, do tell. Yeah. So maybe we should read them. Okay, let's read them together. Okay. We should probably read it out loud. Hello, Sean and Jim. Here's hoping all is... Hello. Hello. Here's hoping all is well with you guys. I've listened to all the episodes of the podcast now. I was impressed to see you had started off doing these weekly. So moving forward, my emails will not be as long. It has been fun listening to all of these episodes. Again, you don't have to lie. It has been fun listening to all of these episodes. You guys have done a great job with this podcast, so I'm looking forward to continuing to listen to new episodes. Before I go into game feedback, I wanted to submit my own version of Addenda Errata based on what was said on the last episode about three games. I listened to the episode as I drove back to Miami from Free Play Florida in Orlando. It made the drive much nicer. 
Uh, one, Donkey Kong Jr. on the Atari 7800 does have all four of the arcade screens. I think there was some confusion during the episode about this, and it was said it only had three. Yeah, I own the game, and I thought it only had three. Probably a testimony to how bad I am at that. But Number two, Buck Rogers is indeed set in the 25th century. Uh, the year 2419 was mentioned during the episode which would place Captain Rogers in the 25th, not the 24th century. And Sean already touched on this one. Uh, the Starpath version of Frogger for the 2600 does include the Otter, which makes it one of the few home versions that does. You can see it here at uh, blah, 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 link. Now, without further ado, here is my game feedback. One, Burger Time. The first time I ever saw Burger Time was at Time Out, where one of my cousins was playing the game. She had discovered it and become addicted to the game. I decided to give the game a try as I really enjoyed the music and I thought it was rather funny to be walking over burger parts to assemble one while avoiding hot dogs, eggs, and other food critters. The first time I played the game, I used up all the pepper on the very first level because I did not realize there was a limited supply. Instead of running from the bad guys, I walked toward them to get them frozen over a burger piece so they would ride down. Not the best strategy. I learned not to do that the hard way, but I really did get hooked on the game. Needless to say, I was very excited to see that Mattel was porting the game to the 2600, and I bought it as soon as it was released. To say that I had mixed feelings about the game is putting it mildly. It looked nothing like the arcade, and what happened to the egg? He was a weird white square. That's kind of, uh, you know, my personality. I'm a weird white square. And, uh-huh. and where did the cheese and breadstick come from? Your imagination. Uh, since we have breadstick... You've never had a burger with a breadstick in it? Come on. Not recently. Oh, okay. They probably have it at Red Robin. I love Red Robin. That place is excellent. Uh, spoken like a true suburbanite. Uh, yeah. Hey, all you can eat Says fries. Says the guy who never went there, although I am very curious. I, I, that, that is one place I'm absolutely willing to try. All you can eat French fries. What if I can only eat two? Well, that's all you can eat. So anyway, since when have breadsticks being part of a burger? Besides this, the game was quite slow, and sometimes the control did not respond well when trying to get off the ladders. The only saving grace were the sound effects, which were not bad considering the rest. Despite its limitations, I did play the game quite a bit since it was the only way I could play it at home. It wasn't until years later when I got the 5200 and 7800 homebrew releases of Burger <clears throat> Beef Drop <laughs> that I finally got to play a good port of the game at home. As for the 2600, be sure to check out the new homebrew being made of the game that is light years ahead of what was released by Mattel. It goes by the name Chaotic Grill, and even though it is still a work in progress, it looks pretty amazing. And he has a link to that on Atari Age. And I guess recently they were taking suggestions for a name change for the game, and I suggested uh, Burger Chef, based on the old, long-lamented ah. fast food chain, which is uh, kind of a mainstay of my youth. I don't remember Burger Chef ever existing. Well, then again, you're older than there me. There was one in Joliet on the east side. Uh, really? Right on Route 52. Just as you came oh, over oh. the bridge over the uh, the Dust Plains River. It's a Re- really? hair salon now. Oh, yeah. Wait, mm-hmm. would that be the Jefferson, Jefferson Street Bridge? Because nope. that's 52. Route 52 actually turns south before it gets to the Jefferson Street Bridge. Oh, okay. That, oh, that's weird. Yeah, and it actually, it like Jefferson Street, Road Route 52 does not actually go downtown Joliet. Huh. Mm-hmm. A little bit of trivia for you. Very little. Yeah. If, wait, am I right on that? Because I know Route 6 is on that bridge. What bridge would that have been, though? There is one south on uh, McDonough, McDonough Street. Oh, okay. I was going to say the other one. The only one I could think of is McDonough. Yeah, McDonough. Okay. Huh. That's why. There was a, in uh, season seven of Mad Men, they split that up actually into two halves. They showed one half one year and then the next half the other year. The first half of season seven, there was a Burger Chef story arc that was actually really cool. 
I miss Burger Chef. They were bought out by Hardee's around 1980, and huh. yeah, the rest is, as they say, history. So, well, there you go. I didn't live in Joliet till 1986. Oh, well, there you go. They probably had one in Kankakee somewhere. They didn't have nice things in Kankakee ever. Sure, they did. Okay, Hunk's Pancake House. Sure. The little oh, and actually oh, actually that's another thing in uh, chapter two of autobiography of a schnook. I do mention some of the nice things. So oh, there you go. Number two, Ms. Pac-Man. Ah, yes, the lady of the pack. <clears throat> Vroom. Vroom. The first time I saw Ms. Pac-Man, I, was almost, I almost dismissed the game until I saw someone else play it. The prizes moved around? The mazes changed? This wasn't Pac-Man, yet it was. Huh. I could just play it like I played Pac-Man, and I wouldn't have to learn much. Munch? Much. What? what? Learn munch. I want to learn munch. <laughs> Guess what? I put a quarter in the machine, yeah. and I got hooked. It's like a drug. Many quarters followed as I kept trying to make it to that ever-elusive fourth maze. I was never successful in playing the machine at timeout, but a few years later, I discovered a Ms. Pac-Man machine that had the round lady moving at super speed. Oh, that was just amazing. Not only did I get to the fourth maze... Oh, I see what he did there. (laughs) Amazing. Good one, Trek MD. Not only did I get to the fourth maze, but I went past that one. It was awesome. Needless to say, when Atari released the 2600 version, I was a bit skeptical given what happened with Pac-Man, but that ended when I saw the game in action at Sears. It was a definitive purchase, and I've spent many hours of fun playing that version. Since I've availed myself of just about any version I could get for any of the systems I owned, 5200, 7800, Lynx, Genesis, NES, you name it, not only did I get those official versions, but I also got homebrews for the 7800, Pac-Man collection, in television, and the 2600. Yes, there are various homebrews for the 2600 that are even more accurate than Atari's version. They go by the name Ms. Hack and even include the intermissions. And there are even hacks of Atari's versions that improve the all, that already solid version by changing the colors of the mazes to better match the arcade, the background to black, and the dots to white. Something that makes the Lynx, Genesis, and Intellivision versions so cool is the addition of new mazes or even a cooperative mode for the Genesis. Without a doubt, Ms. Pac-Man is an absolute classic that holds true even today. In fact, the ubiqui- ubiquitacity there we go, of this game is something to behold. The car wash I go to has one of those arcade cabinets with multiple games, and sure enough, the Miz is there, and someone is always enjoying the game. Number three, Commando. Hey, we're going Commando. My only experience with Commando comes from playing the Atari 7800 version back in the day. I remember how impressed I was with the game and wondering why it sounded so different from the other 7800 games I had. Little did I know back then, it was due to the great pokey chip in the cart. I also did not know this was an arcade port until many years later when I watched a Let's Compare video on YouTube. Needless to say, I was even more impressed with the 7800 version. The game looks better than on the NES as it has no flicker, and with the great sound effects, it has nothing to envy that port. Makes me wish Atari had been smarter and used pokey chips at all their 7800 games. As for the game itself, this is a fun crawling shooter that has a lot going on at once. It sure took me some practice before I was able to finish the game and see the soldier smoking his cigar before the next level would start, but I did get there. Um, oh, I didn't mention, I was going to say about Ms. Pac-Man, I think that's one of the games where I don't think there's a single bad home version of it. Every version I've played of it has been really good. So, there's that. Hmm, that's true. And as far as Commando goes, I don't remember if I mentioned this in the episode, but the 7800 version of Commando had, all, uh, had many of the hidden rooms that the NES version did. And uh, Commando on the 7800, if you can get one for a good price, given it has a pokey chip in it, it is a must-buy. Definitely recommend that one. With I've never head. played Commando on the 7800. It's really good. Put it on your uh, Mateos cart and uh, give yeah. it a shot. I think you'll, you might like it. You might not, but yeah. you might. 
Who knows? I don't know. I wasn't a big fan of the arcade game, but I liked it. Well, you never know. Yeah. So, uh, number four, Clax. My first experience with Clax was on the Atari Lynx, and and as has been the case with other games, I thought this was some exclusive title for Atari's Little Cat. I learned. Oh, I see what he did there. Yeah. I learned many years later that this was actually an arcade game that had been ported to other systems, including the 2600 and the 7800. To this day, I have not seen a Clax machine anywhere to play, not even at retro events. I keep hoping to find one one day because I'd love to give it a try. The Lynx version certainly is fantastic, and it's so good, in fact, that I find myself I find myself not enjoying the 7800 version so, mu- version so much because of the lack of speech. Clax is quite the addicting game, and it sure is challenging. Uh, though the gameplay itself is fairly simple, place the tiles in the right order to make Claxes, it is most certainly not slow or boring. I remember saying to myself, who needs Tetris when you've got Clax? I know the game was also ported to the Genesis, so I'll have to give that one a try. I expect the Genesis version to be as good as a port as the Lynx version. Uh, I know you disagree with me, but I thought the 2600 version of Clax, for what it is, was pretty decent. And um, one thing <sighs> about the Lynx version of Clax, it's a, one of a few games where you actually... The, Link, the Atari Lynx has a button on it that'll allow you to change it from left-handed to right-handed. Because, I mean, it's got the... Uh, the the way it comes out of the box, normally your, your D-pad is on the left, and then you got two buttons on the bottom, uh, two buttons on the top, and like three function buttons. Uh, if you press one of, the, one of the function buttons, it'll swap it so you just flip it over, and then now you're, it changes the orientation of the screen, electronically of course, so that your D-pad is on the right and your buttons are on the left now. However, with Clax, if I'm not mistaken, this one you hold, instead of landscape mode, you hold it in portrait mode so that your button is on the top and your control pad's on the bottom. I will have to double check that because that is one game for the clack or for the clacks for the links that I had not owned, which I really, really wanted to. But uh, I do believe that's the way it was uh, It was designed. I think Gauntlet on the links was the same way. Might not have been. Oh. Hmm. I wish I'd never gotten rid of my links. That was a fun little handheld. But... What you gonna do? No use crying over spilt links. So I don't know. Yeah, I can't stand the twenty six hundred clacks. I I can't play the damn thing. I can't figure it out. I said it before, but it looks like crazy climber more than anything. Yeah, I else can see where me. you would say that, but I think I think they did for what they what they were trying to attempt. I think it was the it was a it was a decent job. It was the seriously Eugenio and anybody else listening who likes clacks, you gotta try the Amiga version somehow. It is amazing. It blows away even the arcade version. There's so many cool features. The Atari ST version was pretty damn uh, damn spot on. It's got some music. It's got a voice. It's got everything. Oh man, it's really cool. Does it got free burritos every Wednesday? I'm telling you, it's like really? amazing. Ooh, yeah. where do they come? What port do those come out of? I want a burrito now. Damn it. And let's talk about Crystal Castles. Number five, Crystal Castles. Number five, five. Crystal Castles. We're talking about Crystal Castles. Crystal Castles. When I first laid eyes on the Crystal Castles arcade machine they had at Time Out, I was mesmerized. The cabinet looked awesome, and the game star, Bentley Bear, looked like he was having fun. It really did. Uh, It helped that he looked cute with the hat and boots. When I looked at the game itself, I was fascinated with how the game looked and that it was controlled with a trackball. I knew I had to try the game, and try I did. It was a very short try. My quarter did not last long, as I was not entirely sure of what I was doing. Welcome to my world. (laughs) That did not matter, though. I put another quarter in, and I kept playing. I found the game to be quite fun, and I was just entertained by it. I slowly improved and went through a few of the Crystal Castles, but I never came close to finishing the game. 
I don't think anybody really did. Uh, once Atari announced the game was coming to the 2600, I just knew I had to get it. I figured it would look different, but I just wanted to have a version of the game at home. When I got the 2600 game, I also bought a trackball controller as, as I was hoping the game would work like in the arcade. Unfortunately, that aspect of the game did not work in that manner, but I still preferred to play the game using Atari's trackball controller for the 2600. Despite the game looking different, they did manage to capture the spirit of the arcade quite well and then replicated many of the sound effects well enough. To this day, I continue to enjoy that version of Crystal Castles at home. I know there is one for the 8-bit computers, so maybe I should get it for my XEGS. That is closer to the arcade version. There was also a rumor for a 7800 prototype, but this has never been seen. Uh. I wonder how well the game would look on the system. Uh, there are actually, the way I understand it, two prototypes for the XE, uh, for the Atari oh, really? 8-bits. One of them, uh, Bentley Bear is a little more squat and fat, and the other one he looks a little bit more, has a little bit more of the arcade proportions. I mean, there are other differences in the versions, but those that's the one I can think of off the top of my head. Unless I'm thinking of uh, somebody who hacked the prototype. That's a possibility, too. AtariProtos.com is a good resource to track all of this stuff. Even though he hasn't updated it in a while, um, prototypes don't really change. So uh, there's that. So uh, six, Zaxxon. I remember seeing Zaxxon at timeout and wondering how well I could play it. The isometric view on this one, along with the difficulty in telling how high the ship was, was made it a little intimidating at the time. I watched others play for a while and for a while until I decided to try it out. Well, I did, and 30 seconds later, I was done. I could not get the ship to align properly to survive. I gave up on the arcade version and did not even bother with Coleco's port to the 2600. It wasn't until years later, when I finally got an Atari 5200, that I really gave the game a proper try. After all, there were no quarters to lose while trying to play the game. After several, as in too many to count, tries, I finally got the hang of it and was able to enjoy the game. You definitely have to keep on shooting if you really want to know where you are. There's no more science to it. I now have Space Raid for both the 2600 and the Intellivision, which that is the home, uh, a new, whoops, a new homebrew of Zaxxon that was created for the 2600 and the Intellivision, uh, which are more appropriate versions of this game for both consoles. It took a few decades of more RAM and newer programming techniques, but both consoles finally got something that has an isometric view, looks good, and plays well. I've yet to play Space Raid. I want to think I, just, I played I, it and I wasn't too keen on it, but I may have only played it for just a couple of minutes. So I just don't like Zaxxon. I think it's a... Oh, man, I hate that game so I much. I like Zaxxon. Super Zaxxon, on the other hand. I really do like the Coleco Zaxxon on the Atari 2600 because it's actually playable. It, it has the same fate as Pac-Man on the 2600, where if it hadn't been called Zaxxon... It wouldn't necessarily have gotten a lot of flack, I don't think. Just like if Pac-Man on the 2600 wasn't called Pac-Man, I don't think it would have gotten all the hate that it got. Huh. That's my take. All right, and um, Trek MD goes to number seven, Zookeeper. This is going to be a little short since I never played Zookeeper. <gasps> Why? Oh, he answers that. Why? I've never seen an arcade machine in this game. I've seen videos and the game does look fun, so I keep on trying to find one of these machines. I know there was supposed to be a 2600 prototype, but there never was an actual game. I may get my chance at playing a clone of the game for the Atari 8-bit computers, though, as the folks from Video 61 are working on a game called Animal Keeper, and he puts a link to that. So we will link it in the show notes, by the way. And a note on uh, Zookeeper, Champ Games uh, recently finished Mappy for the 2600 in their new project. Yes, is there... I have a copy on order. <laughs> their new project is Zookeeper for the 2600, and they've already got some video up of it, uh, what they've got done so far, and uh, they haven't been working on it very long, I don't think, but they already looks like it's getting knocked out of the park. 
Good I just hope they can find a way to take the audio code for Zookeeper that was yeah. recently found and put it in the game because that the only two things from the 2600 version of Zookeeper that has come around was uh, the code for the sound effects and a video on VHS of animation of Zeke running around. Those are the yeah. only two things from that that, is, that have ever come out. So the prototype has got to be out there somewhere. Uh, oh, I, I hope but it hasn't sure. been lost or that somebody is, I hope that somebody isn't hoarding it either. But uh, but this is exciting news because Champ Games, everything they do for the 2600 has just been knocked out of the park. Yeah, John Champo and his team, good Lord. If you haven't seen Mappy on the 2600, it's, I don't know. I don't believe it's the 2600 from the video I saw. There's no way in hell, no freaking way. It's near arcade perfect. But I'm going to find out when my copy eventually gets here. Oh, man, I can't wait. I so can't wait. Uh, it, I mean, it's the music's even in the right key, too. Good God. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, um, let's see. Donkey Kong 3, number eight on uh, Trek MD's list here. I saw Donkey Kong 3 for the first time at Time Out. Had to give it a try. Nothing like any other Donkey Kong game I tried before, but that made me more curious about it. Gone was Jumpman, or Mario, if that was his name already. Uh I still think his name was Mario Jumpman. Um, anyway, and instead I had to control some guy called Stanley, an exterminator. Instead of jumping over barrels or under vines, here I found myself shooting at Donkey Kong to force him as high as I could on the screen to end the level, all while avoiding various bugs that seemed to be protecting the big ape. I found the game to be fun, and I played it quite a few times till the machine was gone from time out, and it would be years before I saw one again. The last time I played this game on the arcade machine was last year at Free Play Florida. As for various versions, I only recently got the NES version, and that's the only one I have. This was never ported to any of the Atari consoles, but I know someone had tried to make a homebrew of it for the 2600. Hmm, interesting. It's simplified, but does capture a good deal of the gameplay. I have not, I have not seen that. That would be interesting. And by the way, Eugenio, um, if you're really yearning to see a Donkey Kong 3 machine... And a zookeeper machine, you gotta come back out here. I know you've I know you've been to Chicago several times. You gotta get your butt back here. Underground Retrocade and Galloping Ghost have Donkey Kong 3. And um Galloping Ghost definitely has Zookeeper. Oh yeah. And oh my god, I was so happy that they got that. Oh, I was a happy the, little dog. The daughter. thing with Galloping Ghost, if they don't have it, they're desperately trying to get it. Except for Journey. Journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They have, all right, this is, okay, thinking back to the bonus episode we did uh, around Christmas time last year, we're talking about our friend Mike Tomano, well, he was our boss too, at different points in our lives, He was uh, when we worked at uh, WYKT, I heard him say on the air, he said, Tim Lamping and Sean Courtney both have albums that don't even exist, and Galloping Ghost is the equivalent, Doc <laughs> over there has games that don't even exist, <laughs> Not a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just freaking insane. <laughs> Dark Presence. I rest my case. Dark Presence. Yeah. Oh, they, they, uh, they. Wait, was it? Is it this coming weekend? Uh, I think it was uh, this last weekend. Oh, this last week. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's they right. Had Dark right. Presence Day. That's a fun yeah, game. If you ever get to Galloping Ghost or Midwest Gaming Classic or somewhere Galloping Ghost is where they're showing this game, give it a try. Sean and I are not huge in fight on fighting games. No, but this one's really no. fun. I loved it. Yeah. Of course, it might have been because it might have been because Ravona is hot. But well. that's probably it. But 
Yeah, seriously, I, that is that's going to be a hell of a game. They've been developing that thing for They've years. They've been developing it even before they opened the arcade, from what I understand. Yeah, when we had Doc on the podcast in episode fifteen, this was uh, three years ago. He was talking about how Dark Presence is just about done. That's been three years already. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, but yeah, it's really something. Dark Presence. There are a couple of unique features about it. For one thing. The weather inside the video game will reflect whatever is outside the arcade. Yep. Like if it's if it's raining outside, then in the video game, it's going to be raining on your characters. Probably and, uh, an- pulling the information from Noah. Yeah, that's very, that very well could be true. And another thing, I don't know if this is final, but something that Doc was talking about doing is if you one CC the game that is finish it completely on one credit. The plan is, I don't know if that's still the plan, but what he was talking about was having it dispense a little trophy. So that's, that's a pretty cool thing. So that's Donkey Kong three <laughs> yeah. and dark presence, <laughs> and dark presence. But let's go back a little bit to Donkey Kong, which is number nine, number nine on Trek MDs. I don't Will you stop <laughs> at the number. <sighs> Uh, he says, what the hell is Donkey Kong? I remember looking at this arcade at, that's exactly what I saw, what I thought, by the way, the first time I saw it at the Holiday Inn in Bradley, Illinois, as I was like, wait, but why are they calling it Donkey Kong? I don't see any donkeys here. But anyway, uh, Trek MD goes on to say, I remember looking at this arcade machine at timeout and wondering what the hell the game was about. Little did I know this was one of the first platform games ever and whose characters would live on for decades. I remember walking up to the machine and there was someone playing and I was very intrigued. The gameplay looked simple enough. Go up the ladders to each level while avoiding barrels this gorilla was throwing down at you. Simple, right? Aha! The guy playing it made it seem that simple. He even got past that screen into a screen with some fireballs that were chasing him. And all he had to do was jump over some rivets. This one seemed a bit harder since the fireballs appeared to be smart, but he used a hammer to get rid of them. I left and came back when he had finished playing, so I didn't get to see any of the other screens. And I decided to give it a try. How hard could it be? Well, I soon found out just how damn hard it was. Goodness gracious. Three quarters down, and I still couldn't get to the top of that first screen. Oh, God, I, I, it makes me weep when I see that, because when I was playing those games back then, that was three-fourths <laughs> of my allowance. Oh, God. All I know is the first time I ever saw Donkey Kong... I couldn't get to the top of the screen either. In fact, at first screen either. In fact, it took me yeah. well into my adulthood before I could achieve that. Wow. Um, so he, go, he says, I walked away to play something else for a while, then came back for some more torture. Yep, I spent two whole hours trying to get past that first screen, and I could not. I left the arcade that day saying that I knew I had to be able to beat this game somehow. Uh, sorry, you can't beat the game. It's got a kill screen. Um, anyway, I did return several days later and found myself having to wait as more people discovered Donkey Kong. I watched others play and learned more about the game before I decided to spend my money on it again. Eventually, I gave it another try and I was able to get past the first screen, but only lived for a short time on the second screen. With more practice, I got into the scream with the bouncy things. I think he's quoting me on that. I don't remember, though. (laughs) And uh, that was the end of it. I could never get past the screen, so I never got to see the infamous Pie Factory screen. I think we should have a, a sound effect for any time the phrase Pie Factory is mentioned on Pie Factory Podcast, other than us referring to the name of the podcast, of How course. about putting in the background of when somebody says Pie Factory the uh, the music from that screen? Ooh, that's pretty exciting, the varied music. Oh, so yeah, I know. Hmm. 
Uh, anyway, uh, I never got to see the infamous Pie Factory screen in the arcade when I played it. Of course, the game was ported to the 2600 by Coleco, and I asked for it as a Christmas gift. I got it, and I still have a picture in which I'm playing the game on Christmas Day. The game sure was not as sophisticated, and I was able to get through both screens much easier than on the arcade. Despite the game not having more screens, it certainly got lots of hours of play. It wasn't until I got my Atari 7800 that I played that system's version and had a much better port to enjoy at home. I know most everyone hates how it sounds, but I didn't care. It was light years better than the 2600 version, and it had three screens. I also had the 5200 conversion, which is really the rather nice 8-bit port, and a homebrew version that was released for the sneeze called Classic Kong. It's Donkey Kong, but with a nicer 2.5D graphics, appropriate to the SNES. Then there are the homebrew and television games DK Arcade and D2K Arcade. Those kick ass, and they were the reason I got an Intellivision several years back. Wow, they put Coleco's version for the console at absolute <laughs> shame. For as bad as people say the 2600 version of Donkey Kong is, uh, they say that the Intellivision version is way, way, way worse. I don't know. I think they're about equally bad, personally. They're, it's the same thing. They both have the same two screens. The way I understand it, it's the uh, the control on the Intellivision that puts that one at the bottom, I guess, so to speak. Well, okay, that's where I'm at an unfair advantage because I played it on my cousins in television and they had these little joystick adapters on the controllers that actually made everything playable. <laughs> but uh, he says, of course, I do have the Donkey Kong XM slash PK for my 7800 and that has to be the ultimate home version of Donkey Kong for a retro system. Agreed. That is as arcade accurate as it gets. So this big gorilla, this stupid Kong... Uh, stupid in quotes, does get plenty of attention and on more than one of my consoles. He may be stupid, but he sure is challenging. Uh, there is a new hack of Donkey Kong in the arcade. I can't remember which version it is, but uh, it's uh, Christmas-themed. And um, I think the, the uh, Sean and Victor over at uh, Tenpence were talking about this. And oh, geez, are we talking about those guys? Yeah, we're talking about those guys. Oh, God. You know, thank God they're in England. I can't imagine what the hell would happen to this country if they ever set foot here. Yeah, hold on to your biscuits and gravy. But, uh, but there's a version of MAME that that will run on, not not the original MAME, but there's another one I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. But uh, I want to see this one because it, uh, it sounds interesting. Christmas-themed screens, so interesting. Oh, yeah. The 10th item on the list here from uh, TrekMD is Space Encounters. I remember seeing this game at timeout and even playing it, but it has been quite a long time. I only saw this game a few times there, and once it vanished, I never saw it again. I remember the trench that kept moving, and that the ship the player controlled reminded me of a TIE fighter. Oh, sorry, I'm not supposed to yell that. It's like an acronym. I it's thought an it was, acronym. Never mind. Uh, heck, even the ship's... Death, quote-unquote, when hit by an enemy, reminded me of Darth Vader spinning out of the Death Star's trench. The next time I saw a similar game, it was M Network's Star Strike for the 2600. I don't think I ever played that. Huh. While similar, because it also uses a trench, the game isn't really a port or adaptation of Space Encounters, but it's the closest thing I think you'll find for a home system. As far as I know, there are no home versions of this arcade game. Yeah, I don't think we were able to track down any ourselves, were we? Um the guy that runs the uh, Route 66 uh, Arcade Museum in McLean, Illinois, uh, apparently has a couple of them, but uh, they're not out in the arcade yet right now. Uh, I guess they got some problems or something with them, which is a shame because that, I, I, I would really love to play that game again because that's a fun little game, as we talked about on that episode. 
And TIE, as you correctly mentioned, is an acronym. Twin Ion Engine Fighter. There's also a TIE Bomber as well. So There's also Thai food, too. I love, oh, there's a great place near work called Thai Way. Oh, Pad Thai to die for. You know, I'm not, I'm usually not a Thai food fan, but there, oh, what's the place that I found that really is pretty amazing? Darned if I can remember. Shea Vader. No, no, it's not Shea Vader. That one I've never been to yet. Um, ah, dread. I suddenly can't think about yeah, it. I've think only had it. the Thai food the one time at that place. And the, uh, the Pad Thai was, uh, how did they offer it? They offered it, uh, mild, oh! normal, hot. American spicy and spicy. <laughs> no, okay. I remember. Oh, I can't believe I can't remember. I couldn't remember the name of the place. It's actually right by where I work. It's called Star of Siam. You know what? I think I've heard of that place. It's on Illinois Street. And the thing I remember, this is crazy. The one that's the thing that sticks out about in my mind is that there's a bookstore nearby, and they actually had art of Atari in the window in that bookstore oh, for a while. So that was really cool. But the reason I feel stupid for not knowing the name of the place is because that's where Eugenio and I had dinner together once. <laughs> but yeah, Star of Siam. I think, did I tell the, the panhandler story? I do not know. Okay. So after Eugenio and I had dinner in there, we, we were walking out, we we're saying our goodbyes and a panhandler comes up to me and says, Hey guys, do you happen to have any, uh, any money? Cause I'd like to get some food. And we're both like, no, no, and I, I don't carry cash anyway. So I was honest. I said, yeah, I don't really carry cash. Then I realized I have in my hand a bag of leftovers that I was taking home. I said, dude, you know what? I got some food right here. Why don't you just take these? And he said, oh, is it from that Chinese place right here? I said, well, it's Thai food. So he put his hand on my back and he leaned in and he said, I'm just going to go somewhere else. <laughs> I said, oh, man. Like, dude, I'm giving you free food for some amazing free food here. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Maybe he knows something that you don't. Maybe. Uh-oh. I don't know. I don't. Hey, we're, we're both still alive. So, That's true. And I know Eugenio is still alive because I just got an email from him a few minutes ago. <laughs> anyway, so. God, we're really going off tangent on these damn things. Yeah, it's 920 and we haven't even talked about the, the, the name yet. I know, so let's go on to number 11, which is still not about our games for the night. Uh, Buck Rogers and the Planet of Zoom. This game is one that I've never seen or played in the arcade. I've played the 2600 and 5200 versions, neither of which are very impressive. The 5200 does look much better, but the game falls short. Oh, no. The first thing that disappointed me about this game was that it had nothing to do with the TV show that ran from 1979 to 1981. Oh, thank you for the history lesson. I did not know that. Although I think, I think you did mention it in the last episode, mm-hmm. but I still didn't know it. God. Oh, it was man. Produced yeah, by it's the, just it weird. It was produced by the same people that produced Battlestar Galactica, which was, if I'm ah. not mistaken, a group of Mormon investors. Aha. It certainly could have been used for this game, but I suppose it was cheaper to get the license for Buck Rogers without involving the TV studios. In any case, the Atari versions do not have all the screens the arcade game has and do not follow the sequence of the arcade either. As far as I know, only the ColecoVision version. Oh, I actually said that right. I didn't say ColecoVision version. I said ColecoVision version does this. I haven't played that version, so I can't really talk about it, but it does at least look more accurate. I'd really like to find one of these machines to play so I can better judge it. It seems to be an okay game, though not a stellar one. I should also note that an Atari Age member is hacking the 2600 version, so the ship looks like the one from the TV show. It even has a title screen with Buck's Fighter. 
Work seems to have stopped now, though, and he puts a link to that, of course, which we will share in the show notes. And uh, he also links to uh, a third article he did about Pac-Man games on the Atari consoles for retro gaming times, except it stops after HTTP, so the link's going to ping him and see if he can uh, relink it to us. So, uh, do you have anything to comment on um, Eugenio's comment on um, Buck Rogers and the Planet of Zoom? Not really, other than I did not realize that somebody was working on uh, making the ships look like the ships from the TV show. So I will yeah, definitely neither did check I, that but out. Then again, I don't, I don't follow development on Buck Rogers, so I, I wouldn't know in the first place. Ah, uh, good point. So why don't we um, read his second email? Hello, Sean and Jim. I hope things are good hello. with you. Looks like my previous email made it too late for inclusion in the previous episode, but this one should be making it just fine. No need to feel sad, Jim. You see, now you have not one but two emails for me in one episode. Yay! I'm doing well and all ready for the holiday season. Christmas is my favorite time of the year, and I look forward to sitting down and enjoying a number of Christmas-themed video games I own for my various consoles. In fact, I've made it a tradition to spend at least a couple of hours playing Christmas games on Christmas Day. That's awesome. So, speaking of traditions, I have another one. Giving you guys feedback on games. So how about I get to it? Well, actually, before you get to it, uh, Trek MD, I have a suggestion for you. I don't know if you know about this already, but since you said that Christmas is your favorite time of year, here's a suggestion. And uh, this is a podcast that Ferg actually drew my attention to because they were talking about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which did, I don't know if I ever mentioned this, but I kind of like that one. No. It's called Can't Wait for Christmas. That's the name of the podcast. It's done by a stand-up comic, I believe, out of Northern California. And this guy is, number one, a Disney nerd. And number two, seriously, this guy loves Christmas so much that it's really kind of (laughs) scary. But I've been mainlining a lot of his episodes. It's a fun pot. All right, dude, I swear to God, if I didn't know any better, I would swear it was Mr. Peanut Butter doing the podcast because he's always always so cheerful and agreeing with everything. And I, I commented on that on the Facebook page, and he said, that's great, because I'm a big Paul F. Tompkins fan. <laughs> but check it out. It's a, it is it is fun, if not a little bit kind of scary, scary obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we can link that in the we show notes. So I'll just read a couple of them here. Um, yeah, do so. One, Marble Madness. Yes, madness is the right word for this game, because it certainly drives you mad. It's a good kind of mad, though. I remember seeing this at Time Out and being curious about it. I hadn't seen anyone play it, but I decided to give it a chance. Let's just say that my first quarter probably lasted all of 30 seconds. Boy, was this a tough one. Despite that, I liked the game mechanic, and I just had to keep on trying. I never got too far, but that did not keep me from enjoying the game. I never got any home versions until a few years ago. Uh, I found an Atari Lynx homebrew version of the game. Yes, Matthias Domin developed a version of the game for Atari's smaller cat, which is freely available to download. Uh, He has a link to that. I don't believe you guys mentioned it, so I wanted to bring it up. It does not have the music of the arcade game, but it does replicate the gameplay quite well. Matthias considers it more of a demo, but it actually has seven levels, which is one more than the arcade, and four more than the, the version that was on the Game Boy Advance. Which, wow, I was so felt ripped off because I made it through three levels on that one and then a game ended and I'm like, there's supposed to be more levels. So I felt ripped off. But at any rate, Domino Man. I had not heard of this game until you mentioned it on the podcast. I had to do a search for it and I will admit to being rather unimpressed with the game. Your comments about it on the podcast did not increase my level of interest on the game uh, one bit. Sorry, Domino Mm. Man. You know, I went back and I played some more Domino Man afterwards I actually like it more now. Oh, geez. 
I'm not kidding. And this is even with when I was playing with a bad keyboard because the down arrow key broke off of my laptop. Yeah. And I don't use a joystick. So even with a broken down arrow key, I was like, this is actually kind of fun. I'm, I'm really liking it. If they so, replaced the four-way joystick with a with an eight-way, I, yeah. I might like it more. Oh, God. Yeah, that's such a thorn in the what side. What was all with Oof. all those Nutting and Associates games that could have benefited from an eight-way joystick only having a four? Wait, was that Nutting mm, and Associates? Yeah. No, that was... Marvin um, Glasser. No, Nutting... Ar- yeah, Marvin Glass. Yeah, Marvin Glass. Marvin Glass and Associates. Yeah. It needed an eight-way. Sorry. That's that's my opinion. So, so at any rate, number three, Reactor. Okay, so this one I had not played in any arcades until just a couple of weeks ago when I was at Free Play Florida. They had one of those machines there, and I immediately had to give it a try. It did not take me long to learn the game, and I was immediately hooked. This is one fun game. I really like the look of the game and the music during gameplay. All those crazy subatomic particles in the game, leptons, nucleons, neutrinos, pions, positrons, and photons, are relentless, and the game doesn't even give you a break in between waves of particles. You clear a wave, and the next one is right there in play. The only home version I'm aware of is the 2600 version, which, based on the videos I've seen, has no music, but does appear to capture the gameplay fairly well. Now that there is a true trackball version for the 2600, thanks to a hack released by Atari Age, I think I'm going to get that version. It has to be much better to play in true trackball mode. Oh man, I got to get my trackball fixed because um, I I might have mentioned this before, but I got I got another Atari trackball. The version that I got, I actually got another one before that, but it turned out it was a very very early model that didn't have the trackball joystick switch, so it was permanently in joystick mode. Mm-hmm. I got a newer one that does have the switch on it, but the sensors are kind of bad on it, so I ordered new parts from. Uh, best electronics and i haven't put them in yet and i'm dying to try that thing out so this might be uh something to add to the uh collection i need to order a new uh, power supply from best electronics for my uh xe here i think i'm hoping that's the only problem with my uh, computer but yeah so do you want to read the last two sure Alrighty. um let's see arm wrestling about which we're talking tonight There was an arcade arm wrestling game? Well, that should clue you in about how much I can say about this game. I did some reading about it on Wikipedia. Translation, he did what most uh, people like us do. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, I wonder how well this plays. I really don't know. I never played the arcade game before. Spoiler alert. (laughs) That will be changing soon. And uh, let's see. Space Fever High Splitter. Here's another game I've never seen before. Nintendo actually made a clone of Space Invaders for the arcade. Looks like they brought their own spin to the game with the aliens actually splitting in two if the player doesn't hit them dead center. I have to wonder if this had some kind of influence on games like Phoenix, where the attackers don't get killed unless hit dead center. Based on what I was able to read, this game also has three different variants of play. Also interesting since the player gets to choose which version to play. I'm not aware of any home ports of this game. I wonder how hard it would be for one of the homebrew programmers to hack an existing game of Space Invaders into High Splitter. Um, I'm guessing it shouldn't be too hard for an experienced uh, game programmer. Notice I said experienced <laughs> game programmer, which means yay, I'm off the hook. <laughs> all right, uh, that's all for today, guys. I wish you both a very Merry Christmas until next year. And by the way, his previous email did end with his usual signature tag, uh, uh, Going to the next, going to the frontier, final frontier gaming, gaming. Yeah. and um, so thank you, Eugenio. Thank you for taking the time to write to you us. You know what's ironic is that you're the one who's employed right on your wedding day. Well, that's true, but that you're the one who's employed as a programmer, and you've never programmed a game. And I really just, I'm not a programmer. I don't work in programming. I've dabbled in it on the side a little bit, but I'm nowhere near competent. And yet, I've written a few games. <laughs> 
That's, yeah, that's I got irony. a couple of things to say about that. First of all, yeah, game the programming that I do is for a website. That's different from game programming. Also, I suck at graphics. I just I just wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know how to make the graphics. I wouldn't know how to program artificial intelligence to move the graphics. Well, I one of my my first project was in uh, was in Visual Basic. It was a little game I called Disasteroids. And it was basically just had a ship at the bottom of the screen moving it left to right. And these huge asteroids would come down and you'd shoot it and it would split in two. And then they'd keep going kind of, kind of Astro smashish in a way. And oh, yeah. um, the asteroids just looked like giant cookies. So, <laughs> you know, there was that. And then I did uh, some dabbling in uh, game maker, which is based on the Delphi programming language. And I wrote a few games in that. Uh, I did a, uh, a clone of uh, 2600 Adventure, I turned it into a platformer, I called it Rindle Jr., in which uh, you're the red dragon, and you're the good guy, and you're trying to defeat the evil square. In fact, he's the boss in the game. And uh, then I did one called Artie the Ant, which was basically a gigantic platformer in which you play an ant trying to collect bologna sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Moikan. So, yeah. So, yeah. That's, that's so, yeah and it. the other things I have to say about that is... Uh, most game programming is like lower level, like kind of machine code ish and assembly language, which I don't do. The languages that I know are all kind of like similar to C programming. So I, I know JavaScript. I, my main job is PHP. I know C, C sharp, C plus plus. And the thing is, and this is kind of brought home to me when I went to a meetup a year or two ago. And there was a, an older guy who was sitting at the table with uh, the group I was in, and he said, the thing about you people is you're not really programming. He said, when, when, I, when I started learning this stuff, I was actually programming, you know, turning registers on and things. What you guys are doing is actually, like, with JavaScript and PHP, that's actually scripting, hmm. which I kind of dig what he's saying. I kind of do, because, like, high-level programming like that, like BASIC and C and Fortran, whatever... It's basically English words. True. And yeah, I, I really understand what he's saying. Nothing there, wrong with that. Yeah. Still no, a pain no, in the ass, but not. there's nothing wrong with, with, yeah. uh, with, uh, with that. But anyway. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go Continue. Do. But that's it. Oh, we do have one oh. more email from Eugenio. Uh, it basically, what? he said he mentioned Free Play Florida, but he forgot to include a link to his, uh, his oh, okay. photo album. So we'll, well, let's, we'll link that as well. Okay. And uh, good Lord. I, all right. Here we are being all. You know, laughy jokey, but I there's we did get a piece of news like like just before we recorded oh, to, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. this episode. You all probably would have heard this long ago by the time you hear this, but it's uh, kind of sad and shocking. We, in fact, I think the easiest way to do it is to read a private message that we got through our Facebook page from our friend uh, Kurt Musgrave. It looks like the source on this is uh, Dean Wenzel. Um, sad day. Legendary Berserk player, star of Chasing Ghosts Beyond the Arcade, and someone I had the privilege to meet many times, Joel West, passed away today. That's uh, December 4th. Joel was 58. Good Lord, I didn't know he was that old. He didn't look it. Joel was a deeply religious man who spoke openly about his beliefs with many. He was one of the original Golden Age video game champions and was featured in the famous 1982 Time Magazine photo that is on display at my arcade. Joel achieved multiple world records, including grueling 50-hour marathon high scores. Oh, God. Joel continued to support classic gaming scene, making appearances at events and shows across the country. Thank you, Joel, for, well, thank you just for being Joel West. 
So yeah, that was kind of a shock. Apparently he'd been sick for a while, kind of on and off. But yeah, we, uh, we actually met him at underground retrocade a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. along with, uh, Walter Day and, uh, Tim McVeigh and, uh, Billy Mitchell. I don't know about you, but personally, I found Joel to be a very personable guy. And, uh, it's, it's just sad when this stuff happens, you know, mm-hmm. our condolences to, uh, to his family yeah. and loved ones. Yeah. God bless you all. Hope, uh, hope you can find some comfort, but, uh, and thank you to, uh, Kurt for letting us know about that. And, um, yeah, I don't know what else. Yeah. I know Berserk was like, I think that was his claim to fame. I don't remember what else he did. I'm sure he had records on so much more, but, um, that's all I can think of right now. But, uh, is there any other news we should talk about? I think that's it. Okay. So, um, why don't we go into a game? Or actually, before we even do that, we've been talking this long, like an hour and a half. We, we're into our recording session right now. My mouth is dry. Uh-oh. Can we uh, open Sean's drinking arena? Let's open Sean's drinking arena. Yeah, I would like to have like theme music for this, but the thing is, this is probably going to be the final installment of Sean's drinking arena because I'm all out of Lester's fixins and Melba's fixins drinks <laughs> after this. Unless I can find the ones that I wasn't able to get at the uh, frozen custard place I like to go to. But uh, this one that I have here. Now, in the original attempt to record this episode, I actually drank coffee cake soda from Melba's Fixins. And uh, I don't really remember anything about that. But I went back to the frozen custard place this weekend, and they had a peaches and cream soda that I never had before. I didn't realize they had it. That actually sounds good. It's like, ooh. And yeah, I kind of stole this whole thing from Jim, who used to like to uh, video himself trying weird sodas. And um, I could just reiterate what I said about the coffee cake one. But thing is like the whole point of this was to get my reaction as I first taste it. So here we go. Peaches and cream. Oh, this is really good. Actually. It tastes like a really good orange soda. Actually just a little, a little less bitey. It's much Mm -hmm. more mellower. And as everyone knows, I'm not a huge fan of many peach flavored things due to a trauma. I suffered as a child where I had, peach jelly and peanut butter sandwiches every day in my lunch in grade school for like three uh, years so similar trauma except when i was in college why i refused to eat spaghetti and meatballs ever again well, there you go <sighs> but yeah i i really reckon you know what this might be another one that would taste really really good with vanilla ice cream well especially because it's called peaches and cream so hey that's all i gotta say Do you have uh, anything to add to that well probably not because you don't have any with you at the moment no all I got is a bottle of pure aqua. Ah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that felt good. You want to talk about a game? Sure. Let's talk about a game. All right. Which one? Let's talk about uh, the game that I've been tasked to uh, ah, talk about. tasked. And All this right. is arm wrestling. Huzzah! Arm wrestling. Huzzah! May 1985. It's a Nintendo game. It's an upright dual monitor raster game. In other words, the second Ooh. monitor is on top of the first one. Uh, just like about another game we haven't talked about yet, which is Punch-Out. Is this the first dual monitor game we're talking about? Uh, I think it is. I th- think it might be. Yeah. We haven't talked about Punch-Out or Super Punch-Out or X-Men or or any of the, uh, there's some of the Darius uh, shoot-em-ups. Yeah, I think this is the first dual monitor game we've talked about. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So this is an upright dual monitor raster game. The object is to become the world arm wrestling champion by beating five arm wrestlers. There's Texas Matt, who's 
kind of a Hollywood cowboy stereotype. He has a white 10-gallon hat. Then there's uh, Kabuki, who's a Japanese sumo wrestler. There is a Mask X, uh, who's a character who's got a mask over his head. And, uh, spoiler, at one point, if you push up on the joystick, you unmask him to find its bald bull from (gasps) Punch-Out. Seeing as we haven't talked about Punch-Out yet. Then there's one called Alice and Ape 3, which is a little nerdy girl who has a monkey robot that she controls. And the final one is a Frankenstein monster who's named Frank Jr. After uh, Kabuki and after Frank Jr., there's a bonus round where you push up on the joystick to catch a sack of money, which is dropped by the Master of Ceremonies. Uh, I think this is the only uh, game we've talked about that actually has a three-way joystick. Say. Uh, Yes. Actually, no, it's a four-way joystick with down disabled. And um, you ah. only push up in a couple of things on uh, on the bonus round with the money bag and entering your initials, which is weird because you can move left, right, and up <laughs> when you're entering initials, but you can't move down. So it's obviously hardware uh, disabled. I would I would take it, but uh, yeah. But uh, you also have. I did some research power. online, by the way, because like I had to play this in Mame because my we don't recommend ever playing anything in an emulator unless you actually own the hardware, but my arm wrestling machine is on the fritz, oh, so yeah. I had to play it in MAME. And uh, the setup that it recommended is is map the button to the down arrow, which is a little bit tricky because when, once you um, put in your, your initials, if you hit the down arrow, it basically submits your initials, and you can't go back. Interesting. So yeah, as Sean intimated there, that uh, we you, you have to enter your initials uh, when the game starts up. And there are no start buttons on this game. You just hit the uh, the power button to start the game. Basically, you, what you do is you keep pushing left, pushing left, pushing left to try to get the other guy's arm down toward your side of the table. Every now and then, the opponent will make a, a special move or look on his face or a sound or whatever. And if that's the case, you keep pushing you keep pushing right to keep him to, to counterattack. And at that point, little icons will come up at the top of the screen and you tap the power button to light those all up. And by lighting them all up, you gain more power. You keep pushing left on the joystick to move his arm back to the left uh, so that you can try to pin him. When you say keep pushing the joystick, do you mean just hold it down or do you mean repeatedly hit repeatedly it? Repeatedly hit it. Okay. Yes. Thank you. You got to keep repeatedly hit it. Yeah, I wasn't sure because I was repeatedly hitting it, but I was wondering, am I playing this right? Actually, uh, the first level with uh, Texas Mac gives you kind of a mini tutorial. It'll tell you when to push the joystick left and when to push it right by showing you arrows on the screen. Yeah. Which is a nice uh, way to learn to play the game. Now, each round is a minute long. At the beginning of each round, a woman comes out and will say, ready and go. And... You gotta be careful to not make a move the joystick before she says go because you'll do you'll get a false start and you only get two false starts oh, yeah. before the game's over. One interesting thing is if you time it right and you hit left just at the right moment after she says go, uh, icons will uh, light up on the top of the screen. You can hit the power button like right away to uh, to kind of help you uh, you know end the uh, the first round a little bit sooner. Uh, some scoring here. It's 50 points for each second of correctly pushing the joystick left to push your opponent. You'll get 100, 300, 400, 600, or 700 points for each object you light up above your opponent's head on a counterattack. 50 points for each time you get pushed left after getting a power-up and freezing your opponent's action. This uh, can be 100 points on higher levels, but never goes over 1,000, 2,200. It does depend on the opponent. 400 points per second for winning each fight. I believe that would be seconds left over, not seconds 
Yeah, that would be seconds left over. 50,000 points for catching the money bag after fights two and three. So if you're going to do any scoring on this game, catch that money bag. This game is a follow-up to Punch-Out, but it is not a sequel, even though Bald Bull is in it. And there are no official home ports. I did was reading that there is a game called Arm Wrestler, I believe on the ZX Spectrum, that one article I was reading <clears throat> online said was a kind of a homebrew version of this game, but it didn't, from the video I saw, it didn't look like it played anything like this at all. So there's that. Ah. So um, I will say, if you're going to play this, from this is from my experiences, if you're going to play this in emulation, again, only if you own the machine. Of course, we don't advocate piracy. Don't use a gamepad. Use a joystick and sit it on, it's something you can sit on your lap because at least to me personally, it was like really hard to do the to do the gamepad because I was like my thumb would just like keep like cramping up from like pushing, 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 pushing on the uh, pushing on left on the on the on the pad. But a joystick works much better. I'm using my my Sega Genesis arcade stick with the Vision adapter that I got from uh, the twenty six hundred adapter dot com. So uh, to you know puts it in your USB port. I've talked about it before. Supposedly, little few things here. In the Wii version of uh, Punch-Out, when you fight Bald Bull before the round begins, Doc Lewis will sometimes tell Little Mac, if you can't beat Bald Bull, how about a wrestl- arm wrestling with him? <laughs> a few little tricks here for Matt for the last three opponents. Mask X will try to ram you with his head, and each time he attempts to do so, just move the joystick right to avoid him. And you, you'll see it because there'll be like a little lightning thing coming like out of his head. You see that move uh, push right on the joystick to avoid him. And before you can pin ma- Mask X, you must unmask him by pulling the joystick up rapidly. And there is that. As far as Alice and Ape 3, these opponents uh, can be counter-attacked, have to be counter-attacked up to three times before you can pin Ape 3. And also, you must grab a magnet that will come out a little bit later in that particular round, which is worth 10,000 bonus points when you grab it. Uh, but at any rate, the magnet will come out in his other hand, and what you have to do is grab that and then use that to defeat him. Uh, you get only two chances to grab the magnet. Uh, you will lose the match if you <laughs> miss grabbing that magnet twice. And Frank Jr. will occasionally uh, signal his hand, give you know a stop signal with his hand, and he will say, wait. Or when he does that, he's going to blast you with fire breath. So at that point, you know, move your joystick left to avoid uh, the flames that he'll shoot from his mouth. Interesting uh, bit of trivia here. This is actually the last arcade game Nintendo developed in-house. Really? And apparently everything else they did after that, like Killer Instinct and the Cruisin' series, were uh, with cooperation from uh, other companies. So thought that was interesting. Uh-huh. Even though this was released as a standalone, this was also a conversion kit for Punch-Out. And that, in a nutshell, is arm wrestling. Arm wrestling, hey. hey. So, Sean, so you know, got any thoughts on it? I was approaching this game not ready to like it because I'm not really a huge Nintendo fan, even though I like Donkey Kong 3, Popeye, and Mario Brothers very much. <laughs> I, I, I love uh, especially Mario Brothers. Man, it's a shame that I don't give that thing more love. Yeah, that's a fun, fun game. Yeah, and um, I'm really enjoying arm wrestling. I really do. It's a lot of fun. The only thing, though, did you play this without cheats enabled at any point? Uh, I played it both with and without. Okay. Were you able to get past Kabuki with cheats not enabled? Yes, I was. I was not. I couldn't. Oh, I came close a couple of times, but man, 
I just couldn't. I could not. How do you get past Kabuki? Think of the game like poker and just try to read the other, read your opponent's expressions and act accordingly. Hmm. Uh, Kabuki, uh-huh. he will like, what is it he does? He'll like grunt and his eyes will open wide. And when that happens, keep pushing to the right to counterattack. And then the power uh, the power icons will come up and just keep hitting the power button until those are all light up. And then just keep hitting to the left. It takes a, while, a bit of doing to do it, but uh, I have been able to uh, to beat Kabuki a few times. Hmm. Not every time, but a few times. No. But other than that, it's a, it's a fun game. I, I highly enjoyed it. One thing I did forget to mention is, I did mention this is a dual monitor screen. The top monitor is basically just used for like status, like scoring, timer, power meter, and all that stuff. Yeah. And when the bonus round comes out, where the MC throws down the sack of money, it starts on the top of the screen, and then he drops it, and it like stops at the bottom of that monitor for just a moment, and then it comes down into the into the main monitor, and uh, so you got to catch it from there. That was kind of neat how it like just stops there at the monitor. The only thing you really got to keep an eye out for on the top monitor really is the time and your power icons. Really? No, the power icons are on the main screen, though. Yeah, it's really just mostly scoring and stuff on the top screen. It don't they don't really use it for a whole lot. It this this really does not need to be a dual monitor uh, game, but I mean it's there, so you know have fun with it, I guess. But anyway, I forgot to mention that, so you can't continue with your thoughts. That's it. Oh, there you go. I really don't have anything further to say. The graphics on this game are really well done, and the sound effects and and that are all well done. It's got voice, but with a lot of games from that particular era kind of hard to understand what the voice is saying you got to really kind of like listen really hard well hell i mean even later games you kind of got to kind of uh i was mentioning um Solvalau earlier and uh, i had to really really listen close to hear what they were saying and how they were pronouncing it so there's that but uh uh it does reuse some of the uh the, the musical uh, themes from uh from punch out in this but uh, this is this is really a fun game I'm going to just say it right now. The first place I ever played this was at Aladdin's Castle at the Louis Joliet Mall. I don't remember if they had Punch-Out at the same time or if they converted it over. I think they had both Punch-Out and this at the same time. But I'm surprised Nintendo really didn't do anything with this game on home consoles. There's no home port of this game at all. Though, I don't think this game was as as widely distributed as Punch-Out. But it would have been a nice little if they had like maybe say a collection that had punch out with it you know throwing it in there i do hope they release this on uh, the switch and they're they don't, it's not a vers- virtual console now but uh i don't remember what they call it i haven't really explored with the switch too much but uh i hope they release this on switch uh it, this is begging for a home release of some sort so yeah there you go this is a pretty fun game so it, it is so, it really is so um do we have any scores do we have any scores? Uh, my score sucks. I think I got like 75,000 in that neighborhood. Wow, that's a lot better. Yeah. I think I got maybe 50,000. Oh, yeah. One thing I forgot to mention is uh, you can, if you lose a match, you can rematch anywhere from three to seven times, depending on how the uh, dip switches in the machine are set. I believe the default is four. Maybe it's five. Huh. So, yeah, it's just, it's like continuing, but you only got a few continues, and you have to defeat them to move on. Now, if you defeat him and move on to the next character the amount of uh, i believe the amount of rematches it stays the same for each character so it's right. not like six for the whole game it's like six for each character 
So that's a good feature. But uh, if you do a rematch, though, it does not reset your score. It uh, adds on to the score you currently have. Aha. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's one of the so. reasons why uh, places like Twin Galaxies uh, require, you know, video <laughs> to prevent something like this yeah. happen happening. One of the Street Fighter, I think I mentioned this before, one of the Street Fighter games had this system for the only time it really used, like, the last couple of digits in the score. It only incremented it by one every time you used a continue. That way they could tell how many times you continued the game. Huh. Oh, right. Yeah, we talked about that before. That's a, That was actually quite, I think that was actually quite an innovative way to deal with it. Yeah. Thinking. So how about them scores? Yeah, how about them scores? Um, oh, according them to scores. what I have here... Twin Galaxies tracks um, arm wrestling at its factory default settings. And with those settings, Mark Haber has uh, the Twin Galaxies record at 187,880, uh, verified via referee on June 28th, 1986. The other big uh, scoreboard that we look at, Orcade.cam, A-U-R-C-A-D-E, shows that Jamie Tibbetts has the record performed November 26th, 2018. Yeah, two days before the day we recorded the first time. Uh, His record is 284,740, and he did that at Galloping Ghost Arcade on that day. Uh, Orcade.com doesn't say what the settings are, though. Hmm. And I wasn't going to pay admission to an arcade just to check what the settings were. (laughs) I guess I could have called over there and said, "Uh, what are your dip switch settings on arm wrestling? But I didn't. Yeah. That would have been over the top. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> what is it? They made both an arcade video game and a motion picture about freaking arm wrestling. I still don't get why you would make a uh, a movie based on it. The video game I can see. There are actually mechanical oh, sure. video, or there are actual, there's a mechanical slash video hybrid arm wrestling machine that I think they have at Galloping Ghost. It's, I don't remember the name of it, though. Hmm. It's a different, totally different game. My wife, on more than one occasion, when I mentioned that, when she said, "Hey, you know, you remember that stupid arm wrestling movie?" and I said, "Oh, you mean over the top?" She said, "Why do you know that?" <laughs> I don't know. Now, what was the song they used in that? Was it "Winner Takes It All" or "You're the Best"? I don't know. I've never seen because yeah, I know that that every movie around that time used one or both of those songs. I don't know. So, um, Jimmy G, what are you going to, oh, actually you said, just call you Jim. Uh, Jim, what are you going to rate arm wrestling on a, on a one to five continue continue scale? scale? I guess in this case it would be not a continue scale, but a rematch scale. Ooh. So I'm going to rate this four rematches. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to rate it three rematches, but a very strong three. Maybe if I spent a little bit more time with it, I could be nudged to bump my rating at two, four. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to spend a little more time with this. And the controls are more intuitive in the arcade since you don't have to worry about, like, balancing a joystick on your lap or whatever. Yeah. So uh, uh, we will need to play this again really, really soon. Or playing with a broken down arrow key. Or a broken down arrow key. Yeah, this is a, this is a, fun, uh, a fun game, and I'm going to revisit it once I find an arcade in the area that has it. Galloping Ghost. <gasps> no. Like we just said. Yeah, we did, didn't we? So we're yes, going we to did. have to play that when we go to Galloping Ghost this coming weekend. Oh, oh, that's right. We're going to go. Uh-huh. Or chances are, by the time people have heard this, we went. Yes. Uh, I think we're not, should we move on to the next game? No. Oh, awesome. 
We shouldn't, but we're going we're to going just to, to uh, fulfill the prophecy that we do two games this episode. The Pie Factory Prophecy. Ooh, that should be a segment. So let's move on. So yeah, let's talk about another game. Now, here's the thing. I said another game, but if I could get your blessing for this, I'd actually like to discuss two games. Now, the main game that I came here to talk about, the one that we scheduled for today, was Space Fever High Splitter. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, because it's so closely tied together... And because there's not really much about that, I'd also like to talk about Space Fever itself. So would you be okay with that? No, not at all. Damn ah, it. Go for it. Oh, okay, okay. Well, here's the thing that uh, there are two different Space Fever variations. or Space Fever and then what they call SF High Splitter. Both were made by Nintendo and released in 1979 in Japan. In 1980, Far East Video Incorporated of Tukwila, Washington, released it in uh, North America. And just a fun fact for you, Far East Video was on 555 Strander Boulevard in Tukwila, Washington. Right now, that building is a distribution warehouse. But little interesting fact about this, Far East Video Inc. was formed by Ron Judy and the late Alan Stone in 1979, for the main purpose of distributing Nintendo's arcade games in North America. And that's exactly what they did until Alan Stone went on to co-found Nintendo of America in 1981. He became vice president of that company. Hmm. But anyway, as with a lot of early Nintendo games, the designer, I want to take a guess who designed uh, Space Fever and Space Fever High Splitter? Uh, Miyamoto? Miyamoto, Shigeru Miyamoto. Yay, what do yeah. I win? You win more me talking. Yay! Oh. Yeah. I mean, and both of these games, Space Fever and SF High Splitter, they are blatant ripoffs of Space Invaders. So, how so? Well, there are several ways in which these games rip off Space Invaders. First of all, there are formations of aliens that you need to destroy using a laser gun. The more aliens you shoot away, the faster the alien formations move. Aliens shoot at you. Uh, what else? There are four shields that protect you, and the shields can get shot away by both you and the aliens. There will occasionally be a UFO flying across the top of the screen, and if you shoot it, you get bonus points. Uh, one thing about this, though, I don't know if you can actually manipulate the bonus points you get like you can with Space Invaders. If an alien lands, the game is over. And also, it just if you were to see a screenshot of Space Fever or SF High Splitter, you're going to think it's Space Invaders because it looks exactly like, well, it looks almost exactly like Space Invaders. Now, how is Nintendo able to get away with it? Well, we mentioned in episode 40 when we talked about Space Invaders how Taito didn't really protect their property very well, yep. which is why there are numerous clones of Space Invaders on the home market. There was Space Armada for Intellivision, I believe, TI Invaders for the 994A. And, um, well, even the arcade now had a clone thanks to Nintendo. And uh, Space Fever and SF High Splitter are unusual, at least for me, in that I don't believe there was ever a full upright version of the game released. All the versions of the games that were out there were cocktail tables. And the control panels had a two-way joystick on the left and a fire button on the right. And there was an additional set of buttons labeled A, B, and C. Why? Well, because both Space Fever and High Splitter have three different variations, and Variation C is essentially just a direct clone of Space Invaders. 
interesting thing is at first glance, you might think that they're monochrome displays with overlays, but at least high splitter is full color. It's not an overlay. They're like, you'll see your ship actually change colors. And, um, I think the original space fever might have come in both a monochrome and a color variation, but don't quote me on that. Both Space Fever and High Splitter used either an Intel 8080 or a Zilog Z80 processor, depending on which source you choose to believe. Now first, um, let's talk about Space Fever, the original Space Fever, which was released in June of 1979 in Japan, and of course in North America in 1980. When in 1980, not sure, wasn't able to ascertain that. I'll talk about the three different game varieties. Game A, there are two groups of aliens, six rows, six columns each. So 72 aliens total. And there's a gap down the middle of the 72 alien formation. The aliens are going to move toward the middle. And once the aliens kind of almost overlap each other, they drop down a level and then move away. And then when they reach the end of the screen, they drop down a level and repeat the process, basically. There's game B in which there's one and only one row of aliens, but after you shoot a certain number of aliens away, there's going to be another row that suddenly appears, and that pattern repeats until you have seen all 72 aliens. And then game C is nothing but space invaders in gameplay. That's it. There's no variation or anything. It's just flat-out space invaders. Oh, by the way, the reason that I say that I think there might be a monochrome and a color version of Space Fever is that the flyers, the advertising flyers mm -hmm. uh, specify that it's monochrome. But the thing is, uh, uh, once again, my Space Fever cabinet doesn't work, so I had to play it in MAME. Otherwise, I wouldn't because it's software piracy, essentially. Yeah. Oh, of course. The MAME version is full color. It's not like it's emulating an overlay, again, because things that are on the screen actually change colors, like things that are stationary, which tells me that's full color. So I don't really know what the deal is. There might be different ROM sets that I might not realize, but uh, anyway, the scoring in Space Fever is as such. The lower two rows of aliens will get you 10 points per alien destroyed. The middle two rows, 20 points per alien. The upper two rows, 30 points per alien. And the UFO, if you shoot the UFO, you will get a supposedly random score somewhere between 50 and 300 points inclusive in 50-point uh, intervals. And I'm actually going to talk about the uh, record high scores right now. Go for it. For Space Fever, only Twin Galaxies has a track for it. Orcade.com does not. Uh, the Twin Galaxies settings specify three laser guns, extra guns allowed. And I believe you get an extra laser gun the first 1,500 points you score. And with these settings, Brian Cady, C-A-D-Y, has the record for all three variations, A, B, and C. And they were verified May 9th, 2012 via DVD. For game A, he scored 2,480. For game B, he scored 2,160. And for game C, he scored 2,870. Those are pretty low scores and a um, couple of reasons. Number one, it's a low scoring game. And number two, Space Fever is incredibly difficult. I don't know if it's that I'm just not used to the formations using different patterns or if it's just that it actually is that freaking difficult. But that's Space Fever. So unless you have anything to interject, Jim, I'm going to move over to High Splitter. Move over, High Splitter. All right. On the actual machine, it says SF High Splitter. It's spelled SF, I think, hyphen, and then HI hyphen splitter. 
but I've seen high spelled out in various resources and I've actually seen SF spelled out as space fever, but for now, I'm just going to call it high splitter. And that was released in August, 1979 in Japan. And again, some unknown date in 1980 here in North America. And high splitter is definitely a full color game. And why is it called high splitter? It's called that because instead of just a bunch of little aliens, you actually have half the number of aliens. Instead of 72 in the main formation, you have 36, but they're all double width. If you shoot a wide alien down the middle, it's going to disappear and you get a score. If you shoot a wide alien off center, though, the alien splits off into two smaller aliens and you don't get any points unless you destroy one of the smaller aliens. Uh, by the way, when you destroy two smaller aliens, the total score you get is still going to be less than if you had destroyed the wider alien. So you want to shoot the bigger aliens away as much as you possibly can for maximizing your score, really. Just as with the previous Space Fever, you have a UFO, just like in Space Invaders, but in High Splitter, the UFO has a unique property. If you shoot the UFO, then a smaller UFO comes out. And uh, ArcadeHistory.com calls it an alien, but I don't know about you, Jim, but it looks to me like it's actually just a, U a little UFO. Mm -hmm. But anyway, once you shoot the UFO, a little UFO remains. And if the main UFO has already traveled halfway across the screen, then the little UFO will travel in the reverse direction. So it'll basically come back the way it came in. I actually uh, successfully shot the uh, the little UFO on the way back uh, once or twice. Which you want to do as much as possible, because that's 500 points when you do that. Ka-ching! Yeah. And uh, if the big UFO hasn't yet traveled halfway across the screen when you shoot it away, then the little UFO is going to continue going in the same direction. But yeah, there you can devise some kind of strategy of shooting the big one and then following it up with uh, shooting the uh, little one away. And if you can get that down, get the timing down, you're going to be happy with the points you get. But yeah. Oh, by the way, this is weird because in SF High Splitter, if you lose a life, your next life starts almost immediately. There's no pause. Once you're hit by enemy fire, you got to hurry up and move right away. There's no pause. Space Fever gives you a little bit of a pause, but High Splitter does not. I noticed that and it caught me off guard a few times. Yeah, did you lose double lives a couple of times? A couple times, yep. Yeah. But as with Space Fever, High Splitter also has three variations. In variation A, the alien formation, when it reaches the end of the screen, is going to move down two steps, and then right away it's going to go back up a step. So it's a really weird pattern. In uh, game B, you get one column of aliens. Space Fever, you get a row of aliens, but in Space Fever High Splitter, you get a column of aliens. And once that column formation reaches the other end of the screen, a new column of aliens is going to appear adjacent to the column that held the... Pre All right, let me put it to you this way. Think of the columns of aliens being in an invisible placeholder. The new column of aliens will appear next to whatever placeholder you just... Whatever the nearest placeholder is. So it's hard to explain, easy to understand once you actually see it in action. You might have two columns of aliens right next to each other. If you shoot away one of those columns, then when that little formation reaches the other side of the screen, the new column that appears might actually appear outside of 
wherever your previous column was. So you'll have like a column of aliens, then a blank column, then another column of aliens. You could see something like that. And game C, just as with uh, Space Fever, is basically just space invaders, but there is a little bit of a difference. It's space invaders, but with the double wide aliens and with the uh, UFO that if you shoot it becomes a little UFO. And uh, scoring in high splitter, the wide alien in the bottom two rows gets you 30 points. Smaller alien gives you 10 points. The middle rows is whatever the bottom score is times two. And the top row score is whatever the bottom row score is times three. The UFO, again, you get a supposedly random number of points somewhere between 50 and 300 points inclusive in 50-point intervals. And like I said before, the smaller UFO is 500 points, and that's likely what will lead you to a very nice score. So, Jimmy G, do you have anything to say about High Splitter? No, no, not really. Gave it a a little bit of a try. It's it's Space Invaders clone. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's what it is from its uh, from its era. I mean, it's not graphically outstanding. It's not sonically outstanding, but I mean, it you know, it is what it is, and it doesn't really attempt to be anything that it isn't. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a decent game. It is. It it be fun. Be it fun now, huh? It, it be well, fun, and it does what it does, and you know, it's it's well, it's got its it's got its charm. Yeah. I got to say, I really enjoy, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to rate it four continues, which yes, this is a blatant space invaders ripoff in which if Taito had been more protective of the space invaders property, we wouldn't be talking about this game right now, most likely. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, there were two different occasions when I played high splitter, SF high splitter specifically at uh, underground retrocade. And both of those times, I was at that damn thing for a long time because I kept because it's a new challenge. It's an interesting variation. And even then, one machine has three completely different variations to play. And the thing about Space Invaders, if you play the original Space Invaders, you might enjoy the game enough that you'll play one credit in which you're going to wipe out, say, three entire screens of aliens and... Um, you might lose all your lives or the aliens might land and uh, you had a good time playing it. But if you didn't reach your high score, beat your high score, you're going to say, man, I could have played a lot better, but you're not going to want to, you don't, it's one of those games where you don't want to start all the way over. And that's where space fever and space fever, high splitter have the advantage. You can still play the game again, but yet play a different game at the same time. And I really dig that. Mm Mm-hmm. And then by the time you're done playing all three of those variations, maybe you want to go back to variation A again. (laughs) It's I know it's just not this guy talking because uh, not terribly long ago, one of our Patreon sponsors, D Alex said, he actually live streamed this. He was at underground retrocade and he was doing the same thing. He couldn't get away from it. So there's something about it. That's making me say this game is worth four continues from Sean. Wow. Four. I'm going to give it a three. Kind of figured, and I don't blame you. Yeah, because just like, you know, you were saying with arm wrestling, I got to give this one a little more a little more of a chance. But, um, you know, it's it's a Space Invaders clone. There's not a whole lot to that they've added to the formula, but it's sure. fun. Oh, yeah. So, you know, 
so that's yeah, that's where I'm gonna leave it. I might revisit this one sometime in the future. I don't know, but yeah, as far as uh, you know, re rethinking my score, as it were. But uh, yeah, there you go. There I go. And uh, there you go. speaking of rethinking your score, let's rethink the high score. Oh, now kind of like with Space Fever, I only have records for one scoreboard. And uh, it's kind of the opposite of Space Fever. For High Splitter, we have records for Orcade.com, but not Twin Galaxies, interestingly. Twin Galaxies only tracks the main version of it. Anyway, Orcade.com shows Jamie Tibbetts having the record for all of the game variations, all set at Underground Retrocade sometime in 2018. For Game A, he scored 21,400 on November 14th. For Game B, he scored 14,290 on September 19th, and on game C, he scored 17,730 on September 12th. Oh, I didn't talk about the home versions of Space Fever and Space Fever High Splitter. You know why? Because there are none? There are none! Woo! Hey, what do I win? You win a sequel! Space Fever 2, actually. Oh! Which was on the Game Boy. But it's not so much like either of these Space Fever games we talked about now, it's actually closer to a, uh, the Galaxian sequel, mm-hmm. except that the first round you only have one alien, and that number of aliens gradually increases with each round. It uh, honestly doesn't really look too exciting. But yeah, and uh, by the way, the only place I ever played uh, High Splitter was uh, Underground Retrocade, and I've never played an actual Space Fever machine, just Space Fever High Splitter. Uh-huh, yeah. I got to get back up to Retrocade. It's been a while since I've been there. I think I've been to the ghost a few times since uh, since the last time I was at uh, Retrocade. As I say, Jeez. I love Retrocade, but it's just so far from me here. But it's just down the road from you. It's just down forty seven. Yeah, sixty miles. Yeah, it's a straight shot. Uh, actually, it it isn't. Um, I got once oh. I get up to what the hell's the name of that little town. I got to go east about twelve miles. Oh, see, I do need. So I do want to get back there. Seven. Jeez. I do want to get back there because. Scott's been more than uh, more than welcoming us. He's been really us. good to us. Yeah. yeah, seriously, all the arcade guys out here have been really good to us. Oh, I mean, yeah, you, they have. Like, I don't even think it has anything to do with this podcast. No, either, I think they, it's just who been, they are. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so, I guess we should probably uh, talk about the uh, the theme, reveal it, I guess, as it were. Huzzah, Space Fever High Splitter. Huzzah. Huzzah, Space, Space Fever. Fever. Space we Fever. had to make sure we get that. Oh, because yes. that was our thing for the year, you know? Yeah, that's true. Which we're going to come up with something for next year, I guess. Oh, crap. We got to think of something. Yeah, I'm sure it'll come. All right. Anyway, um... These, uh, the theme is these are Nintendo arcade games that are recent acquisitions of the two largest Chicago area arcades. Oh! Arm Wrestling at the Ghost and Space Fever High Splitter at Underground Retrocade. Underground Retrocade, yay. Yay. Wow. And we've, there's an accidental second theme here, too. Oh? These are... Nintendo arcade games in which Jamie Tibbetts has the arcade world records on. Oh boy. Yeah. And not only that, but this now marks the third game in a row that we've talked about that has a Jamie Tibbetts arcade.com record. What was the previous one? Whichever the second one we talked about in the previous episode was, I don't even freaking remember. Is it Domino Man? It might've been Domino Man. Probably Domino Man. Yeah, that sounds like, it seems like a little ghost. bit more up his alley than Marble Madness, at least to me. Or was it Marble Madness? Might have been? I don't know. Oh, God. I don't remember I don't waking up this morning. Hey, that's your lie. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, you did say that. Do we have anybody we need to thank? No. Oh, awesome. Well, except for, except for these people, though, actually. 
Of course, we do want to acknowledge that this episode has been underwritten by Knowles PP Gas and Mini Mart. And we do wish to thank the following people. Thanks, of course, as usual, to our friend Steve Tui at Tuiville.com, T-O-U-H-Y-V-I-L-L-E. Thank you, Steve Arino. Yeah, thank you, Steve, for uh, scheduling Pie Factory Podcast into your programming. It's really awesome that you did that for us. And we thank the following people for supporting us on Patreon.com. Art Guglielmo, Nate Lockhart, Richard Valdez, Rory Coleman, Steve Steiner, Michael D'Angelo, New Balance Stores Phoenix, Atari Bytes, D. Alex, Greg Paulander, Jonas Rulo, Keith Sheehan, Kyle Etter, PJ Steele, Richard Grounds, Tim Foley, and Underground Retrocade. And since we're taking a hiatus, we are disabling Patreon payouts. We are suspending Patreon until we are back with a new episode. So probably we'll probably uh, restart Patreon in February-ish, depending on when we start uh, releasing our episodes again. Sometime mid-January to early February, that that neighborhood. Yeah. We're taking the season the season off because we need a little bit of a break and oh gosh um, if you saw the you don't have kids but if you saw the things that uh coming up in my schedule with my kids between school and 4-h and you know and christmas parties and stuff like that yeah it's 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 a mind blower everyone that has kids knows what i'm talking about yeah i'm sure your wife being a teacher knows a little bit about what a, a little bit about what i'm talking about too Probably, and that's probably also why the first time we went to New Orleans while we were having mint juleps at Pat O'Brien's, she said, I don't think I want to have kids. <laughs> and inside, I was like doing cartwheels, like, because yes! we'd kind of been postponing it. <laughs> and I figured, you know what, let me check back later. So a few days later, when I knew that all the alcohol was gone from her system, I said, oh, honey, do you remember what we talked about at Pat O'Brien? She said, yes, and I was dead serious. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So we got a beagle instead. Well, actually, we already had Ruthie by then, I think. Yeah, she was already in uh, in our and, home. So well, yeah. you don't need any more kids than didn't need any more kids than Ruthie. Yeah, I mean, she her. I mean, having a beagle is like having multiple children anyway. I told and, the, and the crazy thing is now that Ruthie's gone. I mean, we're, we plan to get another beagle like in the summer, but uh-huh. now now that Ruthie's not here, it's like okay, well. Now we don't have that dilemma of how are we going to repaint the apartment? How are we going to clean all the floors and juggle like putting her in boarding or or having someone pet sit her or something? So, I have a, so now we got to prepare for another dog. We have a deadline. So, <laughs> not to mention the holidays and stuff. So why did I mention them? Well, there you go. I don't know. But I have a coworker who uh, who who is a beagle owner, and I told no, him, "No, your coworker is not a beagle owner." Well, I told him. I told him that yeah, uh, my friend uh, has uh, his pet beagle recently passed, and uh, he was telling me that uh, you don't own a beagle; a beagle owns you. And he's like, "That is yep, absolutely he's right." right. <laughs> yep. So, alrighty. Yeah. So with that, anyway, we will see you next year. Have a happy New Year, Merry Christmas, uh, Merry Festivus, and a happy Elvis's birthday. That's uh, right, it's Elvis's birthday. Oh, up. by the way, um, one thing I do. I'm sorry to keep prolonging the episode, but. Back in the fall, I had asked people to send in their t-shirt size if they're interested in buying a Pie Factory podcast Mm t-shirt. We have not forgotten about that. The problem is suddenly the t-shirt provider that we use is not responding to their emails through their contact form. And uh, I'm just, I've just grown 
dreadful of calling people on the phone lately. I promise we're going to look into it and, uh, you will hear from us later. If anybody else hasn't submitted your t-shirt size, you might want to buy a t-shirt from us. Just go ahead and reach out to us at, uh, the various ways you will hear a booth announcer say you can reach us and we'll put you on the list. We'll get back to you as soon as we know what the prices are going to be. I can't imagine that they will be more than say a two digit price starting with a one, uh, maybe for certain sizes, possibly starting with a two, but that's it. I've still thought about looking into getting pie factory podcast, uh, cycling jerseys made. Oh, that'd be awesome. Those are expensive though. Yeah. And, uh, we do have tinkle pit stickers in a red bubble store. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we'll definitely, we have not promoted that enough. We'll have to link that in the show notes. So we've already made a dollar 73 off that too. And if you uh, buy just a few more, then maybe we can afford, uh, you know, the mega pack of gum. Yeah. Yeah. Not a galloping ghost, though. No. No gum. No. no. Sorry, We will talk to you all next year. Have a, yeah. all those holidays that I previously mentioned. And uh, What games are we going to do? Hanukkah. It'll be a surprise. And uh, yeah, there you are. Make up your own yeah. holiday. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Liquid smoke. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is the Happy CTA Holiday Train, composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Addenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on piefactorypodcast.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash piefactorypodcast. 